Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again with Adam Chemelewski as we continue our book club month, uh, still covering the uh, 2019 sci-fi romance novella, um, <clears throat> This Is How You Lose the Time War. Um, but this time, Chema and I are going to go a little bit more in-depth on the characters uh, as opposed to the bigger, the broader story beats. Uh, so, Chema, how you doing, my man? Man, doing pretty good, dude. And I got to tell you, like... For some reason, I feel the um, when we did the the music episode, that introduction you did, where it was like, oh my god, like you know, what month is this? We had that little like little bit of fun there. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like we should do that for this episode because it has only been like we had a week in between, but it feels like it's been like a fucking month since we've done the, know. Uh, the podcast. It actually, it does. really does. And like we, because everybody out there, we've been going. I think it's been something like four out of the last six weeks or four weeks in a row, something like that, where we were mm-hmm. recording. And then we had our little like just going back to how we usually do it every other week. And I swear to God, it just felt like so much time had went by in the course of that week. I'm like, I think I grew, I think I grew another inch, maybe grew a beard a little bit. Like a lot of it felt like a lot of time. passed. It, it actually really did. I was thinking the same thing when we got around to today. And I think part of it, we, we talked as we were talking off air. We've both been like busy despite like having a federal holiday. Um, right. it, it just feels like it's it feels like it's been forever. Um, you're, you're absolutely correct. It's weird. It's, it's almost strange that we're still covering the same thing and it's still the same month. It feels yeah. just very odd. Oh, my God. Yeah. Jesus. This is, July doesn't even start till next Friday. Mm hmm. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah. So, like I said, we're, we are going to be we're going to continue our coverage of this is how you lose the time war. Um, we're going to get more into the characters and then as we are want to do on the show, we are going to give our own, excuse me, our own adaptations. Chema is going to be handling the movie adaptation of this book and I'm going to be handling the TV adaptation of this book. Um, so we have some stuff to start off with, but I did want to circle back to something that we talked about. Um, we talked about the cover art and this, it doesn't really like, this doesn't change anything necessarily, but, uh, the two birds on the cover of the book. Um, one is in fact, as, as we mentioned before, the one is a cardinal. That one's pretty obvious. That's red. And the bluebird is one that we couldn't identify. It's not, it's not like it's super rare, but like you have to be in the right place to see this bird. It's an ultramarine flycatcher is, um, oh. what, what this bluebird is called. Um, so not like, you know, it's not like, again, it's not your standard, it's not like your garden variety bluebird or you know like a, a a blue jay or something you can see pretty much everywhere um you got to be in the right the right area of the country to see an ultramarine flycatcher yeah with a name like that that sounds like a right place right time kind of uh, sighting for sure yeah yeah exactly so um although it's it's really interesting like the um I, and i'm sure this it just looks better on the you know this looks better for the book a lot of the ultramarine flycatchers have um their heads are actually like grayish. So it's, hmm. it's like the back mostly that's like really dark, you know, that really vibrant blue color. However, yeah. that, that blue color on the book cover is about as blue as they actually are. Like they're extraordinarily vibrant looking, uh, looking birds. Yeah. And telling you, dude, this, it looks really goddamn great on the cover. The contrast of the two birds, each looking in the opposite direction. I am a sucker for cover art, whether it's DVD, movie posters, album art, book cover art. And this is a really good one. This is just like I said last week, you know, or last time we recorded that I bought the physical copy shelf space and everything. Mm -hmm. It looks 
absolutely beautiful on mm-hmm. a shelf with with the um i don't know like would you call it, like a light blue kind of back color it's a really cool light blue that they use yeah exactly uh yeah it's sort of um yeah i don't even know like i mean obviously it's light blue it, it, it's almost which it almost looks like you're looking at a cloudless sky yeah would be yes. the would be the book cover almost um not sure if that's on purpose but it would make sense with the two birds in the book so <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Really good job of the, the physical packaging on behalf mm-hmm. of the publisher here. They did a really good job with that. Absolutely. Uh, so let's let's get into this. Um, instead of doing a little lightning round question here, I want to get into some color symbolism um, to, to start this episode off. And so, again, there's this is a book that is layered with, as all books are, um, layered with meanings and stuff like that. And it's not a mistake that um that red and blue are the colors that they are right like mm-hmm. there is definite meaning behind um behind our characters our main characters colors so you know and again this is it's one of those things this is one of the great things about books um you know an author could have one very specific meaning for why they did this you know um you, we'd have to ask uh, el motar and gladstone exactly why they went with red and blue um you know their their specific meanings behind you know what they think are the specific meanings behind it uh, behind mm-hmm. the colors but because books are subjective, we can also go ahead and, and put our own meaning onto it. So, I'm going to again going to start with a little color symbolism here. Um, just you know, and a lot of this color symbolism, at least uh, the direction that I went, you didn't have to go this direction. I went with a different culture and how um, and how they look at colors and what the meanings of their colors are in their uh, what the meanings of red and blue are in their culture. You didn't have to go yeah. that exact route, but you know, that, I just kind of wanted to put that out there as like a roadmap. So, Chuba, why don't you kick us off here with our color symbolism intro? Um, how about red? What is okay. wh- where? Where did you go with red here? Okay, so like, it all basically is rooted in passion, I guess. Like, there's um, when you go online and you look up like just color symbolism in general, they give you like a lot of different categories. Like mm-hmm. red being like attention, war, blood, all this other kind of mm-hmm. stuff. But at its core, it's really passion, you know. And whether it's a passion in the realm of love or passion in the realm of hate and physical violence that would lead to something like war. Red is, is at its core is like a color of passion and everything. Mm -hmm. And like, even just like a, just a basic, you know, kind of example would be something along the lines of like Valentine's day and how like our culture in general has assigned the color red to the emotion of love. And not only assigned the color to the emotion but created a whole holiday out of it Mm -hmm. where every uh every single year a bunch of people spend a bunch of money on things to commemorate such holiday (laughs) and stuff i do it myself (laughs) Um, you got you got to get out of the doghouse somehow and february 14th is the day you do it that's exactly right dude that's exactly right so with um so on the one side you have on love on love but the other side you also have you know hate and kind of anger and stuff like that and red for being an emotion of love, the opposite of that is like just, you know, anger, hate, all this stuff. And they actually, um, you know, the Romans nicknamed or named Mars, the red planet Mm -hmm. after their God of war. So there are two sides to the passion spectrum and the color red seems to encompass a lot of both sides of that spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I suppose you could just sort of, you could sort of put it as, um, you know, I, it red is red is the most maybe the most emotional color 
in your yes. findings. That like that's yes. sort of like if you were to sort of you know really get it into a nutshell, red is the most emotional color, and it covers a lot of emotions on the spectrum. Oh, definitely, dude. I swear to God, like so, somewhere in my research, like I think one of the for early couple sentences, red is the most emotional emotional color is the emotion or most attention grabbing color it is seriously Mm -hmm. like one of if not the most like powerful colors that we have on the spectrum it's so powerful that if you get a car that's red you're more than you're you have a better chance of getting a speeding ticket than than other cars right exactly i love it i love it i love the and i love the nod to mars too that's a very excellent point there that goes right into the character of red makes perfect sense um, uh, you know what, I'll, I'll, we'll just, yeah, we'll just, we'll go, we'll just alternate here. So, uh, I will say that I went, I went with the same culture, um, mm-hmm. for, for both of my, uh, for both red and blue. So I went with Japanese culture and it's originally, I was going to like try to mix and match, you know, do, you know, do one culture and then do another one. But I thought, you know what, let's keep it in the same culture because, um, you know, it, it even though as the book lays out, even though our characters are very disparate in very many, in many ways, they're obviously extraordinarily related, as we find out. Um, red, is, red essentially, um, out of love, created blue, if you will, um, in, a, in a time loop scenario. Um, mm-hmm. So because of that, I was like, okay, so let's just keep it in the same culture. So I chose Japanese culture for both. And for red, um, <clears throat> red in Japanese culture is very symbolic of strength, authority, power, not a coincidence that the Japanese have the red rising sun on their flag, right? Like that's, it's a, an extraordinarily important color in their culture. And it, it, it does symbolize the, 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 the idea of being very powerful, which makes sense. But mm-hmm. it's also very, very symbolic. And this is definitely something that's rooted in Japanese culture. Um, and you can, I mean, rooted in Japanese, Japanese culture throughout history, both militarily, civilian, you know, in, in civilian culture as well. It's also very important because it's the color of sacrifice. Um, yeah. you know, you know, obviously sacrifice in the battlefield, but sacrifice in your daily life, doing things for other people. And <clears throat> Japanese culture is, you know, I don't want to like just boil it down to this, but Japanese culture is a very service oriented culture. Like they do go out of their way for, for each other. It's, that has mm-hmm. been one of the tenets of their culture for forever. So, right. it, you know, so in that, in that sense, <clears throat> in that sense, it actually really relates to red. Um, that, you know, the only way for blue to exist and for their relationship to grow and for them to fall in love, red has to sacrifice herself. She has to go through the gauntlet, both through garden and through agency in the book in order for us to get to some kind of resolution. She has to sacrifice herself. Oh yeah. You fucking bet that she does. And like, I'd like that you stick it in Japan here and stuff because the red rising sun is one of the best goddamn fucking flags. And like, you could totally feel like when you look at that flag, that that's what they're going for is some like mm-hmm. exertion of, of power and stuff like that. That is for fucking sure. And like, you make a really good point about with the tie to red and everything is like, that is right about the sacrifice and everything like that. And there is, you know, I guess like blood and a, like, I guess a certain maybe redness that mm-hmm. I would associate with an act like sacrifice. So it all fits into this, this character profiles that the authors, you know, did a really good job of crafting. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, you know, and, and we can even, you know, if you want to take that even a, a step farther, the, the, the beginnings of red before she, um, you know, begins her, like her transformation. Um, red is a universal warning color in nature. For mm-hmm. to stay the fuck away from me, um, right? So it's you know when we first meet Red, she is murdering thousands and upon thousands of 
I don't know, people or creatures or whatever um, on the battlefield. So, like, it's, again, not coincidental that they went with Red as the, who I would, uh, and we'll get more into this, I'm, I'm sure, Red is the more, I would say, the more, the one that you would profile most as the warrior of the two. Yes. So, oh, def- definitely. Not surprising that they went with Red in that case as well. Right, the warrior part of it, she is by far away the more distinct warrior between the two. And like, while we, you know, we know that like blue kind of like does red's job, but we actually get to like see red go into the nitty gritty of a battle and mm. like physical conflict and stuff like that. And it just completely reinforces the color symbolism. Exactly. Exactly. Um, we do see, you know, we do see blue, I mean, at, towards the end of the book, Blue definitely cuts some guy's throat. Um, like, I mean, sure. she does kill people, but it's definitely very different. And I, I'm going to save my thoughts because I have more on that as we uh, as we get a little bit farther into the outline. So um, how about Blue? Okay. So with the color Blue, there's a lot of, like, once again, like with Red, there's a lot of different symbolism here. Like, particularly, like, um, you know, the freedom, intuition, imagination, inspiration, mm-hmm. sensitivity. But I want to, like, focus on one particular thing that I thought thought was interesting and that is blue being associated with trust which i I didn't really know before i never Mm -hmm. had heard this particular take that the color blue being associated with trust which then led me into the whole um cultural thing taking from um, american culture and i this all of a sudden just started to make sense to me. Companies like Visa, Chase, American Express, uh, HP, Mm -hmm. Intel, IBM, all of these companies have blue in their logo. And these type of companies like technology companies and financial institutions, um, yeah, they, that definitely is something that you want to give off as an element of trust because like as somebody, you have to trust a bank with your money as somebody, um, as a consumer, like you have to like trust that you're buying the right technology that's going to work. That's, you know, not going to terminate you and Mm -hmm. stuff. So this, um, this element of trust, I, I thought was very, very interesting being associated with the color blue and also like, you know, to tie it into like the story and everything, you know, it's not like, it's really not like blue ever asked red to like outright trust her. But I think in the whole phrase, like, this is how we win. I think that red has to like, put some level of trust like in that statement. And I know mm-hmm. like earlier in the book, it's used, you know, basically like, Hey, this is my side. But at the end of the story, it becomes more personal between the two of them. Yes. So when he says that, like, this is how we win, I almost feel that like that right there is a statement of just like, you got to trust this whole thing. Trust is a foundation of any relationship, whether it's developing in the toilet or the best relationship that's ever been relationshiped. But I feel that like, you know, that line at the end there is almost like this, like, hey, like, you know, we just you have to trust me. This is how we're going to do this. This is how we're going to win. And by winning, they also, you know, get to start this relationship together. Yeah, exactly. And well put. Um, I love the, you're right. Like uh, so many financial institutions have um, blue or bluish, you know, bluish color um, Mm -hmm. in there. And like, just thinking about it, you're, you're absolutely right. It makes perfect sense. And of course, most, most famously police, um, the institution we all trust and rely on um, and have done no wrong ever to us. Um, They, uh, (laughs) they also go with blue as well. 
Um, yeah. So no, I mean, yeah. Your jokes aside, absolutely right. And it's which is very interesting here because I, I'm going to piggyback right off this point here. Um, so in in, in Japanese culture. One of the one of the tenant one of the one of the strong symbolisms uh, for blue is in fact security, um, <clears throat> both both physical both meaning physically and also like the security of the way they kind of put it like it it uh, it's sort of like the security that you would get um, in being able to like confide in someone that kind of security, yeah. mm-hmm. and this makes again this makes perfect sense. Um, blue is blue is red's safe space. Blue is the person that Red can go to, the only person that she can go to, to talk about, um, you know, talk about the war, talk about what they do, and talk about how she feels. She's the only person that can offer her any amount of security. Um, so, not even, not even coincidence there that um, that Blue would be the Blue would be essentially the you know what starts off as the psychologist or the psychiatrist, and then um, you know moves on. Obviously, the relationship moves on from there to her like most trusted confidant. And then eventually, uh, you know, you know, some kind of lover, even though they actually have at this, you know, never actually have met at this point. Um, so that's not a coincidence at all. And then to go with the more broad strokes kind of stuff, pretty much every single culture, Japanese culture, uh, Native American culture, Western culture, Eastern culture, doesn't matter. Uh, blue, sea, sky, the earth. Um, of course, blue fights for garden, the um, the more, I don't even know what you call it, the more organic and earthy um faction in this time war so like that one not that one's not exactly a very hard um sim, you know symbol to draw right there so right right but like where you're going with the whole sense of security thing that's a hundred percent on point and it also gives the relationship between red and blue a lot more weight because in this whole time like blue's got this husband and stuff like that and if um, if she really felt that she could get the same kind of relationship with her husband, she would feel that level of security. But I, I, this is just me venturing a guess here. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is wrong or right, but it kind of leads with this whole like hive mind kind of thing that exists in the garden. I almost want to say that if Blue started to really confide to her husband, that her husband would like rat her out like Gestapo Nazi style and stuff. And um, taking this time to develop this relationship with red that eventually blossoms into one of confidence. I I think it adds a lot more weight to that relationship and shows you exactly like who blue feels she could be her real self around. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I I totally get what you're going for there. Um, Yeah. That makes, that makes perfect sense. Although I will say this blues husband is a Mark just, but Mm -hmm. like a different kind of Mark. Like what is it? She's waiting for their grandson something is it something like that yeah it is really quickly mentioned yeah but but you're right like you know she has this relationship that apparently lasts quite a while um that she's in it and you know she's still and and i think i think that's one of the periods where they go a while between letters correct correct that is correct yes so that yeah there's like two different periods in the book where they have like a long stretch in between letters and you know that's when she was in this relationship with someone because like their grandkids gonna be important or whatever and you're right, like, even in the time, you know, she mentions in the time that she's with him, she still, like, sees Red in the way that she, like, what was it, that she braids something? Like, that she, she does something very particular, and, like, that's what she's thinking about the entire time. So Right, she's, like, braiding different things together, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah, so, like, it's, you know, so they, they are, you know, obviously Blue is Red security, but, you know, Red is also Blue security. 
Mm-hmm. That's right, dude. There's like the two uh, two peas in a pod, just two people that are that are really like, two consciousness that are made for each other because they complement each other in so many different ways. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, I I was also gonna dig into some like pop culture stuff, but like, so here's what I ran into. Um, red is used in fucking every goddamn movie symbolically possibly ever made. Um, right. I mean, literally, you can. Just pick a movie out, um, like unless it's mm-hmm. one, you know, unless it's like a direct to streamer, direct to video action kind of movie. Pick a movie; they probably use red in it symbolically. Um, so, like yeah. that that one to to narrow it down to one specifically would be not great. But like something that I found interesting when I was doing this part of the research is that like blue is blue is a little is significantly lesser used in that sort of capacity, but. Mm-hmm. It just—I I don't know what this means, but a lot of a lot of prominent characters that are physically blue in some way, shape, or form—blue in color, blue hair—they're associated with the color blue, whatever. A lot of them are women. Oh wow! And I yeah. don't know the exact reason why. Ooh, wow! You know something? I after kind of just like scrolling through my head and stuff like that. The only per- like uh, Karen Gillum's character in the MCU that she's the only like blue skin person, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I just like I, I can't think of any like big ass blue dudes is what I'm saying. The, here. the only like, one that came through was like Genie from um, Aladdin, Robin Williams. Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. And there's like a couple of more, but there's a lot of there's a lot of characters. A lot of female characters are like blue in color, wear blue clothing, have blue hair, whatever. Um, and I'm 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 wondering if that sort of if, you know the calmness and the security and the sort of more earthy natural aspect of it has more to seems to more align with women than men. I, that could, that is something that I could see somebody drawing that conclusion and stuff that that does make a lot of sense to me and. I, I don't know. It's yeah. It's weird. It's just like is Hollywood anti the big blue guy because I don't know. That sounds like a lot of fun to me. I, I mean, right, right. Uh, the, uh, oh, the other notable big blue guy, obviously, Doctor Manhattan. But yeah, but like, there's those are they're, those are like very prominent examples. It just, but it seems like there's just I don't know. It's one of those things that that feels like that feels like um, research for some. Um, you know, a film scholar to actually tackle and, and go through, uh, you know, some some doctor of sociology yeah. or something. So, but yeah, I like just something I noticed. Yeah, I like the Doctor Manhattan thing. The only like theory that I could possibly float out at the time of my at, off the top of my head is that it's just a way to contrast all the other characters to have yeah. this one solid blue guy because everything in the the, the comics and stuff is like really not there's really not a lot of like people wearing blue and stuff the comedian has got like some on his uniform but it's not the big bright vibrant blue so i I, that may be one thing but i I guarantee that there's knowing that it's something alan moore had a hand in there's probably 700 pages as to why dr manhattan is blue somewhere i'm sure i'm certain of it but but you but you are probably right and sometimes like the simple explanation works like he Dr. Manhattan just looks better on the page blue than he did mm-hmm. yellow or red. Yeah, now that I think about it, like a yellow one of him would look really weird. A, a red one, a red one would look like a devil. Like that's right. You know what I mean? Like that's it would be it would be it would be one of those things. Like a, a bright blue naked man makes more sense 
as some kind of, or I shouldn't say makes more sense, just as more clear that like he's not a, he's some kind of weird, um, you know, some kind of weird offshoot entity of like particles as opposed yeah. to something else that a different color you can kind of confuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe like a little more ambiguity in his in his personality. Whereas if he was red, I think it'd be like, oh god, he's all. People are ultimately going to view him as bad, like just right, right. off the bat. And right. then maybe wait for that he's super bad plot twist that never ever comes, kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So let's let's dive into the characters. Um, again, this is we we already covered the story kind of at large, so we're just going to dive into some more character motivations and just some some things that we think about the characters so we're going to start with red again going to start with red because we both agree that red is the protagonist of the story um obviously blue is our deuteragonist but most of the important change in action happens to red so we'll start with her so what are some things that we for sure know about red and oh. just and, and you know some things we know for sure and just sort of anything that you might read into that okay so uh, Red is a soldier, agent, assassin. That's kind of how I classified it as to cover as much possible territory right. here. Uh, for the agency, which is this like technocratic society, basically made up of consciousnesses that are grown in pods and experience the world via technological advancements like drones or like, I guess, sleeving like they do in Altered Carbon where your consciousness kind of joins up yeah. with a body type thing. Um, so she has been fighting this great war that spans across a bunch of strands of time under the leadership of Commandant, who we're going to talk about here as the discussion continues. Uh, one thing that I did find interesting in particular was that Red has this fetish for feelings, as they describe early on mm. in the story, which, um, you know, I... I hate to like explain it like this, but it just sounds somebody that's just like a, a junkie for like emotions, I, I, I guess would be like what comes to my mind in terms of um, explaining it and stuff. And um, what happens is, is like in this whole, you know, kind of like life that she has of carrying out these missions and stuff, she's actually like relatively lonely. And there are times where like, I, I almost feel that like maybe she basks in the loneliness that eventually kind of fades into a desire to have companionship in some way, shape or form. And um, let me see here. So she's been in many different versions of the past, present and future throughout the strands of time. A lot of different encounters like with the Mongols has even been to Atlantis. And the last thing that I have is that it's um, <clears throat> in general, when we meet her, she is more of a incomplete character than how I feel blue is. And mm -hmm. I'll save a lot of the stuff here for blue. And a lot of um, what we see with red is really like somebody who's just blossoming into their full self. And we can even notice the way that the prose is written in the first couple of letters compared to the way that it is in the last couple letters, like certain words like mad props, which are, maybe relatively infantile in comparison to some of the other pros later on. Like that, mm -hmm. that's like an early version of red and throughout the story as the stakes get higher and as her relationship with blue develops more, she becomes more of a complete character through the experiences in that she has in the story. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> all right. So you threw out a lot there. So I'll, I'll, I'll go through it with you here. Um, it's here's what I find really interesting. So, are they consciousness being born or are they bodies being born that develop consciousness? And I, I ask that because there's clearly some kind of organic element to them. 
um, as she mentions, like the the gel bath of nutrients that yeah. they're born into. So, like the, when they're as they're growing, they don't like need to eat, and actually, they never need to eat. Um, but like, so so is it that they're is it that they're actually born? And this is again, this is speculative because this is one of the things that we just don't really get any clarity on. Um, so, is it that they're born? They are born, and the consciousness is sort of later developed, and then it can kind of do whatever it want wants. See, when you explain it like that, it has to. It sounds like somewhere in there that there is a physical being, because right there, there is mentioning mentioning of growth and, and nourishment in the gel baths and stuff, but like they don't really give us a whole lot as to what is actually going on there. So like when you say like growing in the gel baths, I, the first thing that comes to my mind is like something like surrogates, like it's a physical body in a pod somewhere and the body is kept alive for the sake of the mind. And then the mind goes and that the consciousness can then kind of go and do whatever it wants or something like that. Yeah. I, I, I sort of imagining I, surrogates. Yeah. I, it's actually, surrogates is actually not a bad, I mean, it's a dumbass movie, but um, it's actually not a bad comparison um, because that's, that is actually how I viewed it. I, but I viewed it as like, essentially these are, uh, again, this isn't very explicit, but it feels like these are supposed to be people in, you know, advanced thousands of years. These are supposed mm-hmm. to be humans thousands of years in the future. Maybe, you know, maybe some kind of vision. I, I, I know we've mentioned it before. I can't remember which episode, um, but um, I know we've mentioned it before. There's this idea of the singularity where mm-hmm. humanity and technology meet and right. there's like not a difference anymore. Um, so maybe this is some kind of version of that. And it feel, but it does feel like red, the way red describes it to me, at least that they are in fact born, even though they are sort of, you know, in, 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 in large part, mecha- you know, mechanical or technological or whatever, however you want to put it. But mm-hmm. I, the reason why I think that they're born and they are sort of, you know, they're not, you know, the consciousness isn't just being developed is the way that she sort of describes the way her mind works, how it's very clearly that they're a collective, but not a hive mind that yeah. they can share thoughts and everything else, but they do have their own individual agendas and things if they mm-hmm. want them. So to me, that sort of suggests that they are sort of individual people that are born and then the consciousness develops as it would, you know, like through any baby, you know, at some point in time we develop consciousness and then we go from there. <laughs> Right, right. And honestly, man, like, I could definitely see that. Like, one of the things that I really wish, because I just love, like, the idea of the agency and garden and stuff, like, I almost wish that there was just a little bit, like, more clarity on that. Because as I was working on, you know, the, um, the movie stuff that we're going to be getting into later on, like, I started to kind of wonder about, like, personifying the two characters. You know, we'll get into all the details later. And I'm just like, if the book would have given me, like, a little bit more, I feel like the decision to – obviously, the decision to personify the characters for the movie is the is a pretty easy one. But if I wanted to take it a little bit more of a higher-brow premise, I some kind of clarity as to, like, what they actually are physically would have helped me in maybe yeah. crafting a different story where – they're not humans, you know? Yeah, exactly. I, I know exactly what you mean. And I'll just, as a tease for that, for that section, I'll just say that like, because, because the book is so internal, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, you almost have to make some of those decisions about showing things on TV or in a movie 
you just have to show certain things. So there are certain yeah. things that I absolutely personify and show because I feel like it's necessary for for it to work in a medium <laughs> and where you need to see things. Yeah, exactly. Like it is quintessential for the the need to see stuff. But like part of me was like, man, for this podcast, maybe I should get like a little bit adventurous. And then in the end, I decided to only get a just a scotch of adventurous. I guess. Yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you. So. All right. So, you know, those are the knowns about red. Um, so what are the things that you mentally filled in? What's let's just go, let's go back and forth on this one. What are some things that you mentally filled in? Like what's your first thing? Okay. So the first thing that I mentally filled in was like the badassery of the character. Like I, I know that we, we see some footage of her like in the beginning with the war and stuff, but like, I, I kind of just filled in the fact that she's got a lot of different like experience in this kind of setting. So for, I basically just didn't need an update as to all the missions that she's been on before we got to the story. Like the, where we start at is enough for me to kind of fill in some of the background that led her to where she is now. Yeah, I got, I got you. Exactly. There's um, you're right. Like we get, we get a nice peek at the beginning and then it's kind of, it's all just through mentions at that point, like there on after, right. It's, mm -hmm. it's mentions about like what she did here or like the things that she saw here. Um, yeah. So you just have to kind of fill in the fact that this is probably, um, and this will go to something that I'm going to, I'm going to mention a little bit, a little bit in a few questions here, actually. Um, you just have to sort of like imagine that like, not only is like red a badass, she might be like the most badass badass in all right. of space and time. And yeah, I'll get to sort of why I, I might, why at least I think that, that like, this is sort of, you know, like when you're like, if you're to like in video game parlance, this isn't like, you know, on, on your way in some, into some mission, these aren't like the, these aren't like the mini bosses that slow you down. This is the fucking boss that takes up an entire room and right. like, it takes everyone to fucking kill it. That's red. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm interested to hear you expand on it a little bit, but just know that I am in the same kind of camp as far as this person being a badass among badasses mm -hmm. among badasses. So, so I agree with you there, and then I'll I'll sort of throw like a little contrast on it, and, and it's that despite like her her definite badassery, I imagine that she is actually very young, mm -hmm. and and I say that obviously age is extraordinarily relative when you're time traveling. And it kind of doesn't really mean anything to your to your consciousness, right? Like it, you know, like their their bodies don't age because they don't. She can just take a body as she wants to, um, right? But nonetheless, like if you were to clock her, I imagine that she is quite young, even even in even in like terms of even in terms of like our years, like human mm -hmm. years, she would be very very young comparatively to the other operatives that agency is sending out to go do this stuff. Oh, t totally, dude. Like, I got to a similar conclusion. I took a different path. And, like, mine was just a complete Adam Chemielewski folly brought to life. And I thought... Should, like should I, I said, put up the should I put up the meme of Charlie uh, with the Pepe Silvia board? I think you should, actually. Okay. Yeah, definitely. But Super closed my face in there with, like, all the different cigarettes from that, like, LeBron meme and stuff. <laughs> yeah. so, so, like... The, I said during the um, the last episode that I thought this book was YA for some reason, like I just mm -hmm. whether it be the cover or just the way that it looks on the page. I thought this was YA. So I was under the assumption that, that the characters 
would be a little bit younger. So I like, I just kind of operated out of that based on like the, the physical copy of the book I had in my hands. I, I got you. I got you. I know exactly what you mean. Um, yeah, uh, I know what you mean. And I'll um, let me let me add like one more point to this, too, that it, it's very clear as she begins corresponding with Blue that all of the experience she has is in combat. And mm-hmm. she even mentions right off the bat, like the first letter that she gets, that she hasn't like talked to anyone like other than presumably other than Commandant. She hasn't mm-hmm. talked to anyone in potentially decades right so so for me it's it's like it's so she's she is young i I kind of think of it that way like she is in years young but in in battle experience she's old as fuck she's experienced as hell but in like living experience she's also extraordinarily young too oh yes dude that was one of the things that i kind of had to work to fill in myself was that you could definitely tell on the battlefield there's nothing stopping this individual but you could tell through like the letters and even so much with her, like kind of confession to blue that, that we get more in the middle of the story that this is somebody that like socially is still, um, is, is still like a child. Whereas on the battlefield, she is just a colossal specimen of, of human and stuff like that. Like, and much more mature. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, are any anything else here before we move on to the next question? Those are my only two. Okay, so, yeah, I, I just had that really that sort of main point. But um, so, when do you think then that red first begins to change? And you know, is there anything you can cite besides like the obvious like change in the letters? Like, is there anything that sort of stands out that you go, okay, red is clearly beginning to to transform a little bit here. Definitely. I, my first indication of change that I was able to spot out was on page 20, when at the end of the mission, um, she basically fails this mission. This is when she's walking around in the caves and everything. Mm-hmm. And when she fails this mission, it's just kind of like, uh, ha, ha, you know, like I failed the mission. Yeah, but oh, I got to go back and fix it, even though like she doesn't say I got to go back and fix it. It's just written in the prose. But um once it's just like, yeah, you know, whatever, I don't really care. To me, this was like the first kind of inclination that she does want something more, that her life is going to be set down on a path where war and battle and death and destruction is not everything that's in her life. Because for somebody that's like doing a scroll, a skull or a spine crush on page number one, for them to not only fail a mission being so goddamn badass, but to kind of just like shrug it off, like say, I'll fix it later. Then we never really get any resolution. And we honestly, we don't really need any right. resolution for the story because the whole thing was here was on the, on that particular page, page 20 was to reinforce the seeker. But, um, I just feel that for, for a failure that is brushed aside so easily that this is like an indication that, um, you know, that she doesn't want like her current life and that a path is now forming for her to leave said life. I, ex- I went with the exact same moment. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. The exact same moment where she's in the, I, I guess the sacrificial caves, the, the, that's not like 100% clear, but it seemed like there were sacrificial caves uh, since there's just fucking bones everywhere. Um, right. But regardless, that same, the same idea that, um, the same idea that like she fails this mission and she laughs and she's just kind of like, well, fuck, this is almost in the same way that like when you fuck something up at work, you're like, well, there's some paperwork. 
that I'm going to have to do at the end here that like I didn't, you know, I made myself more work and right. sort of, I, I, I don't think prior, prior to her correspondence with blue, which at this point was only like three letters deep or four letters deep. Um, prior to this, I don't think she would have laughed at failure. Um, that, that she, it would have been like, it, you know, she even talks about how like on successful missions, how intense the scrutiny is when they go back to agency that mm-hmm. they get like debriefed thoroughly and rigorously by agency and how like just how annoying that is even when they're very successful so mm-hmm. the the fact that she fails something and she can laugh at it is something that would not have happened prior to her meeting blue i don't think this is this necessarily means that like we're we're at the so we're going to get to this question i don't think that necessarily means that's when she like falls in love it's just that clearly this interaction has changed her at this point in time Oh, definitely, dude. Yeah, this is like the catalyst moment of of change for sure. I can't really pinpoint to any other examples prior to page twenty that would even be anywhere near anywhere near like this. And for the debriefing process, for Commandant getting mad or the agency getting mad when they eat or they eat too much or they eat in public, whatever it mm-hmm. is, this was the first like real breaking of. Of, of that like mindset to me, like this whole, like everything's got to be perfect business, business, business mindset, which mm-hmm. um, you could tell has been like instilled in this character from the day that she was birthed, conceptualized, Birth, whatever it is. However, yeah. <laughs> right. So like th- this moment and then like, and, and honestly, like if we're looking at the book, like, you know, real estate wise and page number wise, this happens like I, I think like right about this isn't necessarily like the inciting incident because I feel the inciting incident is the fi- the finding of the first letter which happens in the first chapter. But this would kind of be like that the thing that like sets the person like on their journey, you know, like yeah. in this mm-hmm. in this particular instance, it's the the journey of developing this relationship with Blue. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We have um we get the we get the the letter um from like, the MRI machine, but like. It's it's more just a reciprocation. It's not mm-hmm. it's not a change. It's just like oh, you're gonna do this. Well, I can do this too. No big deal. This is when we first get like a real like hint that things have changed. Yeah, exactly, exactly for sure. So to to that question, when do you th- when do you think besides obviously the proclamation and the letters, when do you think Red falls in love with Blue? Okay, so like I feel that the actual proclamation itself starts in page the letter that is like page eighty, where she's like, "Yeah, hey, I'm all yours," and everything like that, and that part of the story. Mm-hmm. So, like, if I'm going for any type of actual part of her like falling in love, I would have to think we are somewhere in like the Victorian England section where she's just kind of like. Um, scraping up with like blue leaves behind and stuff like that. It's her um, when the seeker basically first starts to like collect this, the stuff for blue. I am very at least aware of that as an audience. That might be her actual like first insinuation of falling in love, which we, we won't know that until the end. But after mm-hmm. looking at it retrospectively, I think that like whenever we first start to meet the seeker and she collects blue stuff in Victorian England and kind of inhales it, I think that that's when we're getting into like actual love in a non-letter proclamation form. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Um, so I, I, yeah, I agree with that. That, that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Um, I, I do sort of, I, I think I'm cheating on my own question a little bit, but like 
I think when I get to the end of it here, it'll make sense. So it is sort of, it's in a letter and it's in the letter in which red seals the letter, um, mm-hmm. wherein she writes the letter on a cod that a seal ate that blue has to then club open up and get the cod back out of the seal to, uh, to see the letter. And it's, it's not so much the letter itself. It's the act of what she did. It's a, it's a lot of trouble to go through to make that sort of letter. I mean, obviously all the blue does some other, you know, more amazing things with her letters, you know, growing them to trees and shit. But, mm-hmm. um, but the way that it's not just like, it's not just mimicking in the same way that like with the MRI machine where red's like, I can do this too. This right. shows more creativity in, and this shows more creativity, and it shows that like Red actually went through the trouble to read this Mrs. Levitt's guide to etiquette. Um, she she took a part of that about how you oh you're supposed to seal the letter. Okay, so it's there's creativity. There's um, not really at this point mimicry, more like emulation. That's something that Blue might have done, and sort of yeah. trying to be clever to show to show Blue that like hey I'm I'm clever too. I'm as smart as you. I'll I'll show you how the way I do my clever. It's it is sort of um, it's flattery, and I think that this is sort of a sign that Red is in fact falling in love with her because why else would she do this? Oh, right, yes, exactly. This is like I, I'm struggling to think of a specific example in my life that I have done something similar because I, I haven't been around a seal long enough, nor would I ever stuff a fish into its mouth with a letter written on it. But um, like. I know exactly what you mean. It's, it's almost kind of like a, like almost like a touche type moment. Like I'm taking something of yours that you've like recommended. And I'm like, I've actually sitting down reading it, experiencing it. It's like when somebody that you're first dating, like recommends like a movie that you've never seen only so you could watch it as a, um, a way to spark a future conversation type thing. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like what I'm seeing here is that like, you know, blue makes this, um, this recommendation red clearly has no idea what it is, but she has feelings for this individual. So she decides to take interest in something that the other person is interested in. And then through this display, um, uh, with the, the letter in the seal is kind of just showing that like, you know, like, Hey, by the way, I'm listening to you. Not only am I listening to you, but like, you can show me things. I can have new experience with you, with you. You are mm-hmm. capable of like broadening my horizons, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. You put that better than I did actually. So perfect. Exactly what I was going for. It, it's, uh, and I love the comparison. It is sort of like when someone you first start dating, you give them or they give you a movie recommendation, an album recommendation, something along those lines and like you, you don't just like listen to the album like you kind of if especially if you really do have feelings for this person you really listen to the album you listen mm-hmm. to the lyrics what what the meanings are if there's anything more to it and you know so in this case it was an etiquette guide a fictional etiquette guide that red really that red really listened to if you will yeah yeah definitely all right i like it so let's let's move on to blue here um, again, just so what are some things that we for sure know about Blue? Okay, so just with the, the general stuff, the soldier agent assassin, this time for Garden, which is this hive-minded, viney elf world. So obviously more rooted in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I Once again, with the whole consciousness thing, I, I guess this could be one of these deals where is it a physical body that's just grown on a pod and a vine type thing? Like I, I, I don't really know exactly if we're, what we're talking physical form here, but I just kind of went with this whole, like it is mm-hmm. a consciousness that's grown. Um, 
but Garden for being so natural does use technology, which is something that I also find to be relatively interesting. Um, I would say that Blue uh, in general is the more complete character to start off with, mm -hmm. which is fine because Blue is not the protagonist of the story. Blue does arc, but in a different way yeah. than Red does. And um, the other thing that I will mention with Blue is that... Um, on top of being a more complete character, I feel that Blue is like the more knowledgeable and confident one of the two. Blue is the one that is a little mm -hmm. bit more kind of um, cool with the way that they are. They have knowledge of different pop culture stuff, history, all these different things, different experiences. And the way that the prose is put into the book um, and then now knowing what we know about um, El Mothar writing these particular letters is just that like that level of like poeticism and stuff that goes into the letters makes for like a really unique voice that could only really belong to this character. And some of these things that blue knows about pop culture and life or has these experiences, they kind of come into the, the letters in this almost like kind of comical way at times. Like there's just this example that like I just go to like I got to get to it really quick. There's this I'm a part of this like young professionals group that like, you know, meets now via Zoom every couple months. So it's just a bunch of people who do what I do. Right. And um, there was this guy who was clearly trying to win a job somewhere in this whole organization. So he wrote this letter or this like summary um, that ended up in our newsletter and this was like written exactly like one of Blue's letters would be. A lot of like really jovial and light and kind of it almost feels like that they're like the letters are making like a toast at like a really big dinner or something like that. And a lot of like really cool, interesting words that are used in an interesting way. So like I feel that just like Blue is the more complete, competent, knowledgeable character that not only has the knowledge, but can use the knowledge in kind of like a cool, entertaining way. I fully agree with all of those points you made. Uh, I want to circle back to, to something that you kind of pointed out that's, that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> so you pointed out that Garden um, obviously uses technology. Otherwise, how could the agents of Garden time travel? I mean, they, you know, they, they can't just like right. will it mentally. So they, they're, they're obviously using technology and there's some other there are some other things that let us know that they're using technology as well, um, you know, throughout the throughout the the book and the letters and everything. But it, it's what is interesting here is that I I do feel like they're you know I do feel like Garden is obviously a mirror for agency and and vice versa. But mm -hmm. the things that they mirror they mirror are very interesting. Again, like you know the agency is this technocratic society. Garden's clearly this more elfin you know natural organic world, but I where I think that um, where I think that um, uh, red and agency, it's a collective, not a hive mind. I actually yeah. think that garden is a hive mind. That you are one piece. You know, even you know, think about like I, it sounds fucking weird, but trust me on this one. Um, a lot of things in forests, especially if they're like from the same, if they're the same species of tree or the same species of fungus, they are all interconnected and they all talk to each other. They all communicate. Um, like we know for a fact that like mushrooms can communicate with one another. It's mm -hmm. like, it's through like electric, you know, electrical signals. They can talk to each other essentially. Same with trees. They are sort of one collective mind. And so mm -hmm. while 
you know, despite the fact that you would think that the the technocratic society, the future society, would be a hive mind, it's actually the garden is the hive mind, like a lot of plants would be. And so much so, in fact, that when um, Blue, when she's born, and um, we find that Blue is sick and now has sort of been infected with, as we, you know, as it turns out, infected with um, poison by Red um, in, a, in a nice little, again, a nice little time travel paradoxal loop. Um, once we find that out, we know that Garden sequestered her and kept her away from everyone else because she was so different. So despite that, you know, Garden is sort of this more um, natural, if you will, this this more Earth-based faction, it's very clear that they have even less individual agency than the people um, from from agency do. Right, right. The um, You're definitely right on that. And like, what's weird is like, there was never, I don't believe in the book that there's ever the phrase hive mind in, right. anywhere in the book. But every review that I have read um, in between the two episodes that we've done, they all describe garden as a hive mind. So yeah. like, it's, um, it's something that I, that, that I definitely see what you make about the um, electro signals and everything like that, that the mushrooms and the various plants use to communicate with each other. Totally, totally on point right with that. And I also feel that there is just like, a certain harmony in nature where like, if you, if you take like the forest, for example, like one, like one element introduced into that environment, that's not normally a part of that environment could cause like a, could cause like a lot of different crazy butterfly effecty type stuff to go mm. on. And that is like, at least like in my mind, like I kind of associate that situation with like the hive mind where everybody's kind of got to be, at the same, you know, like on the same page. And if there is any type of conflicting opinion in there, it's just going to throw the whole freaking thing off. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's, I don't know. It, it's, it's a weird, again, it's a weird sort of juxtaposition, but I, I don't feel like that was a mistake that, you know, every, everything comes with its, especially for these two characters, everything has like a cost benefit to what, you know, to their factions. You might have yeah. more freedom, but guess what? You're also, you have to go fucking murder everyone on the planet for us as a part of that sort of mental freedom. And like, hey, you can go enjoy pop culture and just kind of go hang out. But also like you are 1000% doing my, what I want. You know, Garden's going to tell Blue, you're 1000% doing everything that I want you to do. Right. And like those conditions, like. I almost feel like are kind of like a statement on life in general in some way. It's not, I don't, it obviously, I, it doesn't really mirror like our society and stuff like that, but I feel that it's a really interesting kind of position for characters to be in mm -hmm. where like, yeah, you could have a little bit more freedom, but you have to do like all these horrible things for us. And yeah. for people that like, Hey, he's like, go hang out, smoke weed by the lake all you want, but you have to agree with like every single thing that we say. It's I'd maybe like, um, if I had more time, I would be able to put together like a somewhat of an analogy for modern times, but it is a really interesting kind of situation to put onto a character and something that, um, you know, like, believe me, I am pretty positive that in some way, shape or form, we could get into all the different kinds of things about the morality and the different dilemmas behind those types of situations. Mm. Like, yeah, it would be cool to just be creative. But like, how about like in my being creative? Like, what if I don't agree with what you guys said because you've given me the opportunity to be creative? It's like one of those kind of deals. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's um, I, I probably very broadly, there's a lot of cost benefit things to the to our choices in life. 
and right. the freedoms the freedoms we're willing to give up for the freedoms that we want essentially mm-hmm. yeah yeah definitely so what did you mentally fill in about blue the same question that we had for red what what what, what are the gaps that you filled in Okay, so um, again, some of the the badass like assassiny type stuff. I, I just kind of took them at their word that Blue is really good at uh, at this particular field and everything. And when it came down to some of the the pop culturey kind of stuff and some of the more like knowledgey, more poetic kind of deals, I, I just basically kind of filled in like a lot of like some of the experience stuff. Like you know, it would make sense that like Blue and, and the Romeo and Juliet thing, and would make sense for like Blue to have all of this um, you know kind of knowledge about stuff that like Red doesn't have because Red's not going to get that opportunity to do it. So in terms of like how 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 this character got to be like this. I just kind of filled in all that on my own. I I really didn't feel that we needed to know how blue got to where she is, but um, I I do feel that like they did a good job of like giving us enough to help me just kind of fill in some of the other stuff in terms of like how blue developed into the voice that we got to see on the page. Yeah. Yeah. No, I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, You know, I want to I want to circle back again to what you began with, which I think is interesting. That yeah, we we obviously get the same impression that Blue is is a pretty badass badass, but mm-hmm. her badassery is definitely very different. Whereas whereas Red is is clearly a warrior. Um, I think of Blue as a spy, as someone who and not like a not a fucking James Bond spy because James Bond like. You wouldn't be a very effective spy if you blew up everything in your fucking path every single time <laughs> you went on a mission. People would figure out who the hell you are. Um, mm-hmm. A spy in, in sort of the sense of like, think of more like corporate espionage. Someone who has to really blend in and play the long game. And that's like her strength is she's unassuming. She's quiet. Um, but like she gets results because she's patient and knows how to play yeah. things for as long as they absolutely take. Not to, unlike a plant, who, you know, quietly, slowly grows and does things like that. Um, so, like, I so I imagine her, again, like, as maybe the ultimate spy. Um, and, and really, for the most part, most of the situations that she's in, we, again, we don't really see her being outwardly violent except for a couple of times. But a lot of the things, like, she was married to someone for, it sounds like, possibly 30 or 40 years. To, mm-hmm. to make sure, to ensure that, like, a grandchild, a very particular grandchild was going to be born. She, um, you know, she made sure to um, her letter to to Red probably took decades, if not 100 years to grow into a tree. So, you know, she is playing the long game. She is the master spy, which also sort of to me gives me the sense that she is an absolute genius, maybe like the smartest of all of Garden's operatives, Um, Mm -hmm. perhaps perhaps smarter than Garden themselves. Um, even and and that's sort of why Garden lo- likes to sort of give her these dangerous missions and things because knowing full well she doesn't even have to she has more she has more individuality and more intelligence than some of her other operatives their other of, of Garden's other operatives. Um, but I again then this is something that just to sort of go to reflect off of Red I also feel like Blue not only in like life experience but just like in time is also older would be someone who we would clock in their 50s, possibly. Like, mm-hmm. I really think this is someone who has had 
obviously significant life experience, but like it just is a person who is older and has had more time to reflect on the things that they've done. Oh, definitely. And I feel you get you get the age difference, particularly in their voices. And like what I said, like this, the whole like kind of poetic way that Blue speaks, it does kind of remind me of the way like certain older people speak when they're they're trying to be entertaining. You know, like there's almost like these certain kind of like personalities that like older people take on when they're trying to be entertaining. It's the same way with us. We all kind of take on these you know, like different versions of ourselves whenever we're trying to be entertaining or funny or something. And like, I kind of see, you know, like going back to like hanging out with my grandparents and stuff during like their pinochle night or whatever it was like, there were a lot of characters who spoke the way that blue spoke. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm just surprised she didn't say hark something, something in one of the letters. Like, it's just like, there's just that level and that kind of, um, uh, the, the, the kind of like a dialogue and the, like the way that the, um, the, the rhythm of the dialogue flows definitely feels like a much older person. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. She, I mean, she doesn't give you a hark, but like her first letter is, um, and Ozymandias quote. Yeah, that's right. Look yes, on my work, see right. mighty in despair. <laughs> yeah, I know you got a ye in there. That's right. That's almost as good as a hark as a ye. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, it, it's, it's, yeah, like this is, the voice is more mature and like I just I think about it this way you want to like a really stupid way to think about this um so you follow shithead Steve on Instagram right of course yeah okay just make it I figured it's got like, like fucking 30 million followers of course um so like uh shithead Steve's been posting these memes about like if you if you sort of took modern teen slang and put it into movies and yeah. it's so it's like Harry Potter like it you know um, where Dumbledore's telling Harry Potter that he's a wizard, and it's just like, it's just like, yo, Harry, use a wizard for real, for real. And then Harry responds with like, no cap, that's hot. And it's like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's how fucking young people speak um, now. Mm -hmm. And you know, in those same young people in 20, 25 years, I, I, I'm again, we could. This is something that I would love to talk about in some capacity about how language, how quickly language is changing now because of like the technological influences, but. Yeah. Um, but in 20 to 25 years, these same like 15 to 20 year olds won't be speaking that way. They, there are definitely certain elements that will, that they'll take along and they'll, they'll adjust English language with them. But when they're in their forties, they won't, they won't be saying no cap to each other. Right. right exactly. That's like. There are so many different times where I really want to say like stupid things from our our childhood, whatever they may be. There is a lot of different terms. And then like I stop myself. And even when like I may say something like far out or rad or whatever it is, like it just sounds really bad. Like it almost sounds like I specifically put that word in there for some reason when I clearly didn't. It was just the first thing that kept it, mm -hmm. came to my mind. I when when people or I catch myself saying something like rad, I immediately feel like I, I immediately feel like I've aged an additional 50 years. Like I'm yeah. trying to be young. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's right. It, 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 it might, it, I might as well be wearing the, I might as well be the Steve, the Steve Buscemi. Um, I gift. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I might as well instantly become that when I say rad music band on a shirt. That's exactly right. Hello, fellow kids. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so uh, what do you think Blue's plan was from the beginning? We again, we 
we know that this is this is two sides engaged in a endless, you know, sort of constantly changing war. But do you think that there was a plan from the beginning? If I was to throw any type of plan out there, it would be that she just wants to get away from this lifestyle. Because in the, the first letter, she mentions how she's grown bored of the war. So I feel that that is put there early on in the page or in the book you for a reason and stuff. And like, we obviously like, you know, we get we're in wind of like blues kind of plan that has developed over time. Um, but I feel that um, her real motivation here is to just like get out of this lifestyle to maybe break free from garden, to break free from her duties. And this is the way that she decided to go about doing it. I think, yeah, I think, I think you definitely could be right. Um, there's, yeah, I mean, obviously, pretty much every letter sort of is sort of a, or I shouldn't say every letter, but the first couple letters are in, in the same way that, I, I don't know, someone who's just terribly bored with their job is like, what can I do to pass the time here? Like, mm -hmm. what, what can I do here? It does have that feeling to it. So I definitely, I definitely see where you're coming from with that. Um I'm going to go sort of the opposite direction. Not opposite direction. I'm going to go eh, semi-opposite direction. That the initial letter to Blue was actually part of something, part of a, a, a task that Garden gave her. Um, and this kind of goes back to the idea that I sort of have, that I filled in with her being sort of this master spy. That, you know, in addition to the the general stuff that she has to do, like, you know, you know, be it ensuring the birth of a certain child or, you know, helping to destroy Atlantis like everyone else. Pretty much both sides agree that, like, Atlantis has to be destroyed, uh, which yeah. is interesting. <laughs> but, um, so in addition to that sort of general stuff, that she also, like, I, I, the, and Red kind of alludes to it at the ending when she's not sure about, um, where their relationship is going. Um, I think that Blue was originally tasked with, you know, getting to agency's operatives be it mm -hmm. to turn them or just to expose them so they can figure out, so Garden can, you know, better, you know, better try to wipe them off the board, if you will. And yeah. I think that was the original task. And the original, the original task was like, Hey, cause Garden clearly when they, when Garden and Blue meet up later, Garden clearly knows about Red, like mm -hmm. clearly knows about her. And you would know about the most badass warrior in the history of time and space. And so it's very possible that, that this was originally like, like, Hey, you're our best operative. See if you can turn their best operative. And then that sort of veers off course immediately when, uh, as Blue mentioned, she was born with this sort of hunger that she can't explain, that no one else mm -hmm. has ever had. Um, so, and it's obviously, again, it was caused by Red um, to, you know, to ensure that she doesn't die later on. Um, and sort of that sort of hunger suddenly takes root when she does get, you know, essentially cross paths directly with Red. And so the original plan just goes right off the tracks. Yeah, you know, I could I could honestly see that happening because if you think about like the age difference between the two like we just talked about, like it would make all the sense in the world that like the garden would use somebody of a high intelligence to try to get in with somebody who is just like a badass warrior but is not as smart. So like in terms of like doing some type of exposure, some type of master plan where you're getting in with somebody, you're going to send like a really smart person to do that. That's not going to go to like the big, 
bruiser guy on the force, you know, it's right. going to go to somebody who's really intelligent. So I, I can kind of see that. I can definitely see that. And if you are garden, like you like, I just, for some reason I'm, you know, garden nature, I'm kind of under the impression that they're at a natural disadvantage over the, the technocratic society. So any type of, way that they can get a one-up any type of advantage that garden could get like i feel that they're going to take it and trying to get in with the spies and trying to turn them trying to learn much about them maybe set them up is is something that um that i could see happening easily yeah yeah i mean you know again these are probably everyone out there at this point you realize these are all subjective questions uh, yeah, so like it, again you you might be 100 percent right she just wants out and she's looking for someone to give her a way out um, but yeah, I, 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 and honestly, I like both reads on it. Either way, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. That is the great thing about it. Subjectiveness. And that's the other great thing about a book like this, where you are given, you're given only so much and there's a lot of room for interpretation. It, and this book especially gives you a lot of room for interpretation, which again, like we, we, as we mentioned before, so we won't, not to beat this dead horse in the last episode, um, Certainly there are some spots where like we could use some more explanation, but this sort of thing, like, you know, like what was blue's original mission? Who cares? <laughs> like, it, it, yeah. it, who cares? It doesn't matter. We can fill this in. And honestly, what I'm filling in, I probably would like better than what, you know, than getting a very sort of normal explanation, like mission param. I don't need mission parameters. I, I like right. kind of filling this in on my own here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is kind of the cool stuff to fill in and everything. There's definitely a lot of stuff that like I want to like ask questions about to author to the the two authors, but like this kind of stuff and everything where we're filling in a lot of stuff on our own, it's completely subjective. And you and I could have um, two completely different views on what something means, maybe what something was supposed to be, and that is kind of the cool thing about books like this and art that is like this because there is just so much room for discussion. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So to wrap up this, uh, wrap up blue here, do you think that, um, blue knew at some level the nature of the relationship and, and the connection between the two of them? I gotta say yes. Like, and I think this just reinforces the idea of love being so strong that it will withstand time and war and all this other stuff. There's gotta be something in there from the beginning. Like I just, I feel that it, that just reinforces this theme of love being so strong. I am in 100% agreement with you that there had to be something, you know, the, the hunger, the hunger that she's feeling that she mentions isn't hunger necessarily. It's love. She just doesn't, because of the nature of time travel and the paradoxical nature of the story, she doesn't understand that that's love yet until it, until literally she's dying. Um, yeah. She doesn't understand that that feeling is love. So yes, I agree with you. The initial idea that like she, that she feels hunger, um, that she's always felt hunger is love. She just didn't realize that that's what it was. Yeah, definitely dude. And it took getting to death to realize that too. So like even, for something that is like for a storyline and for a goal and for something to like um to just kind of come about that that realization so probably how we should have started it it just shows that like even like when the stakes were at the highest this realization happened so like they do a really good job of like you know like basically taking it down to like the final minute when somebody's on their deathbed for them to have this realization and i think mm -hmm. that's a really cool way of um, building attention and everything like that as the story goes. And mm -hmm. it, it's basically just like 
it's basically like storytelling 101, but it's done in this really cool kind of way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, all right, so let's move on to the Seeker, um, a character that we are introduced actually to too early on, but like we don't know the nature of the Seeker um, until like we we circle back in the book again. It's a time travel book. Um, so, of course, the Seeker is one of the characters that we've been following along the entire time. Um, it is Red. So, Gemma, at what point did you realize Red, um, as the Seeker, was following her own path through time? Or did you? <laughs> I, I realized it when they made the big reveal. In the yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, like, my, my whole thing is, um, and I may have got into this a little bit in the previous episode, was that... I was sort of waiting for another antagonistic force to kind of make itself known. And like, we don't get a whole lot with the antagonistic forces of the story. Like we're aware of it. They do, they give us what we need. They do a really awesome job of giving us these characters of agency and garden and the commandant that I, you know, obviously that those are the things I want to know so much more about. So I thought that the seeker was going to be some type of, antagonistic force that plays a part in some kind of twist ending so i was way off on that yeah same here i i was like i literally again i I know i mentioned this before on the last episode that like considering all of the time travel stuff over the years time travel pop culture and like the information about like time travel possibilities that that i've consumed over consumed over the years i cannot believe i didn't see this coming until like it actually happened and and even mm-hmm. th- and even then, like I, you know, when I realized like that the seeker was, you know, some, you know, the, how that the seeker was stalking, um, stalking red, or it seemed like it was stalking red, that like I was still sort of waiting it for it to be something else, um, yeah. other than red. And but as we got later and later in the book, I'm like, well, okay, we only know of two other characters besides red and blue. It would be a very odd insertion of another character at this point in time, like it just, it's too late to, yeah. it's, it's sort of like if you ever watch a law and order episode and we're like at minute 40, if they, you've already met the killer at minute 40, they're not going to suddenly right. introduce a, another, an, another character and like, Oh, and that's the guy who raped and murdered the girl uh, and left her body in the Hudson river. Like mm-hmm. we've already met the dude. So it was just like, by the time I was really sort of like, well, who could it be? I'm like, well, who the fuck else could it be? Like, take your pick of, like, basically two people. But right. even then, I still was, like, sort of, like, I I was kind of expecting it possibly to be blue in some capacity as, like, maybe a ruse or something. But, yeah, I, I just, that moment, the, the moment in the reveal did make me feel, not, like, dumb, but I was just like, well, of course. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, because, like, you make a good point here where you you get so far and you really can't introduce new people after a certain point in time. And like I, um, over the weekend, I, um, was, I, I got a copy of the script for Joker and I was watching the movie and kind of reading the script along at the same time. The script is way better. Todd Phillips, somebody, somebody did you a disservice by not putting the script I have and bought on Amazon from uh, into a movie. That's a story for another day though. But where I'm going with this whole thing is that, um, in Joker, the new characters that um, that are essential to the story that like are introduced is the two cops. It's uh, Shea Wiggum and the guy who thinks he's God from that episode of The Leftovers. He gets eaten by the lion and stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, they Bill are. Yeah, yes. They are introduced like page like fifty or something like that, and that's the only like with the exception of 
Mark Maron's character, which is just could be anything that's not a, a character of any real like um, significance. Like these two cops are like they're introduced in the middle of Act Two, and that's literally the only characters of any significance that we are that we are met to after that because. You're not going to have enough time to form a relationship with a character if you introduce them halfway through the story. And when they chose these two cops in particular, they're cops. So it's, already, it's a profession people are already familiar with. Like, hey, it's just going to be natural that cops are investigating everything that's going on. So they did this really good job of doing that. And when it comes to bring it back to the story here is that, um, you know, they reference Commandant early on. So it's cool that we meet her in the second half of the book. But um, they don't really – how who what other new personality are you going to insert into the story to where it doesn't just feel like one of those deus ex machina things at the end yeah exactly exactly um speaking of commandant let's move on to there um so commandant is the representative of agency i guess you could call her the agency's general um commanding officer um and actually if you well i'll I'll get into this i'll get into this a little bit you know a little bit later here so what do you think commandant might represent Okay, I think they're one of these like state first societies, almost like just to go with the red thing, like like almost like a Russia, like communist China kind of thing that's going on where like, yeah, there's like certain like kind of freedoms that you have. But in all reality, you are like beholden to the state and everything. And um, when there's no like I don't believe that like that it was any coincidence that like this color of hers and the associations with like China and Russia and stuff like that, or even like Nazi Germany and everything. I I feel that these are all like kind of like lining up to these, the symbolism here is just kind of lining up with everything in the red section and stuff, the the technocratic society and like with, um, with a technocratic society. And when you have so much reliance or so much like of a relationship with technology, it's somewhere in there, like you're not really free. Like if, if everything is coming through like a third technological party, you're not like you may have some like element of freedom, but you're not like a hundred percent free and complete society. And I, that may not exist anywhere in the world if we really want to get technical about it. But like that's kind of what I'm seeing the, the commandant and like this agency kind of representing is this idea, the idea and the enforcer of this controlled society yeah yeah i mean i think you're i think you're absolutely right like we when we get like the description of commandant um it's someone who is in fact like you know it you know the the introduction is like a this like torturer in i don't, I don't know is it supposed to be world war one is that where we meet her or world war two so they don't mention nazis do they mention nazis well, it's in a Russian camp, so it wouldn't matter. A Russian anyway. camp. Okay. Yeah. I'd like for some reason I thought that they had that there was a mention of like a Nazis or something like that they were holding in the camp or something, but I I would then maybe think World War One then. Well, they were also involved in World War Two, but um, they they fought a whole yeah, front yeah, over yeah. there. Um, but regardless, it's one of the it's, it's one of the World Wars. Um, at, this, at least I think that's what they're alluding to. It could have again, it could be in something entirely different, but it, it sounds like they're alluding to one of the World Wars. Um, so when we meet Commandant, she's like this Russian, uh, Commandant takes the, the body of this, this Russian torturer, um, interrogator, I guess. And, um, you know, there's like a prisoner tied to a chair there that she is, that she's working over. And it, the way that that Red describes her, like, you know, clearly someone who is sort of uncomfortable being in this body, like that doesn't know how to operate it. 
And it's because mm-hmm. they are sort of... The, the way that that society works, their technocratic society works, is about control. And it is about sort of, like, the way that they're sort of a step removed from physical bodies and things. That everything is very tight and controlled and, regula- and regulated. And you get that sort of feeling from the way the Commandant is. Someone who is very uncomfortable getting outside of the bounds of their society. Right. That's exactly right. The uncomfortability and um, of her in this body and everything like that is a definite representation of what it's like to be outside of one of these controlled societies. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so I like the direction you went and I went, um, I went uh, not, not different. I mean, this is, <laughs> I just went like a little more practical, I guess, or real world. Maybe. I don't know how you want to describe this, but commandant is middle management. Um, commandant is a pencil pusher. This is, this is the person that just delivers orders and realistically speaking, has no actual power. Um, mm-hmm. But for whatever, but they, but nonetheless, they are the ones that um, that the actual leader is going to appoint to sort of be the face. So the actual leadership has nothing to do with the with the people in the in the you know in the business in the company. Um, right. CEOs don't talk to the the nine to five employees in most companies. In some companies, they do. But like the CEO, the CFO, the CTO of Walmart aren't talking to the regional manager in fucking Bainbridge, Ohio, um, yeah. <laughs> ever. That's never going to happen. Um, so Commandant is middle management. Um, and then you could sort of, and sort of the way that, again, just to, to bring this the, the, the scene where we meet Commandant up, how uncomfortable Commandant is maneuvering in a human body, this is also the boss without experience. The, the person, <laughs> we've all had it. There's always someone who's your boss who somehow got to that position without doing your position first, mm-hmm. and this is the this is the leader without experience. This is the this is the commanding officer who's never been in the trenches with the troops. Um, so like, so again, I know I won't I won't go too far back into this, but like the whole like the reason why war is so fucked for so many reasons. There are leaders in war who have never who have never spent a day in the trenches, who have never spent a day doing this who've never spent a day doing practical, you know, practical war stuff. And they're the yeah. ones who are suddenly put in charge. And that's Commandant. Commandant is the definition of middle, middle management and leaders without experience. Yeah, that is definitely a great real world example. I'm really struggling, struggling to think of a TV or film character that I could, that I could put with this whole thing. Cause like I immediately go to Michael Scott, but that's not the case. He worked at Thunder Mifflin his whole life. Right. But like, but it's um that is that like is exactly like what it is and stuff. You're a hundred percent right. The CEO of Walmart or whatever position that's higher up is not taking any phone calls with anybody that is like on the the lower tier of the employment pyramid and stuff like that. That is for fucking sure. And yeah, like this this uncomfortability stuff, like. Yeah, of course, like people who don't know what the hell they're doing, that's how they're going to come off. So mm-hmm. like the idea of Commandant being this like middle management and stuff, it, it, that's 100% on point. And like it just like it makes me want to meet the real leaders in some way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If if and this is sort of little this is really really speculative if there even are leaders for agency. That's true. I mean, that like, is really true. If it's not just like an algorithm telling them go to, to go to war. Yeah, I know. That's that is a really good point. And in a technocratic society, something like that is 100 percent on the mm. table. Um, real quickly here. You, do, you, do you want the definition of commandant? Yeah, definitely. Because it, it kind of plays into two different things here, two different ideas. Um, so 
it's in it, it's a rank, but it's really more of a appointed position, and okay. it's usually someone. It's usually in reference to someone who is in control or the leader of a military training institution. So, like the commandant of West Point. You know, it's yeah. it's. Um, I can't remember the guy who is the commandant, the current commandant of West Point, but like he has a rank. He's a brigadier general. Um, but mm-hmm. then that position has its own title, the commandant of West Point. You are in charge of the. Um, the young people that are going to be the next generation of soldiers. So, kind of it, that kind of feeds into the idea that Red is in fact young. That yeah. perhaps she is at the equivalent of West Point um, for her mm-hmm. for her faction. But also, um, a commandant is also the commander of a military prison or a prison camp. Oh, gotcha. Okay, so, that I didn't know. So perhaps, perhaps, um, you know, perhaps this. You know, whatever the side that Red is fighting for is either a, you know, again, either a, um, you know, a military college or a military prison. Take your pick. Yeah, that, no, that's really interesting right there because it could be either because it could be either one. She could be a prisoner just she just doesn't that, know it. this. This is what you have to do and stuff like that. And she doesn't. Yeah, that's right. She could not even know it either, too, which also has a whole other layer to this whole thing. Yeah. So, and this is just pretty quickly. Do you think we get the right amount of time with Commandant? Essentially, just the one conversation. Personally, no, because I love this whole element of the story. But like, if I'm if I'm going to like think practicality in terms of our favorite word from last episode, real estate, we probably got an appropriate amount of her in terms of page count and everything. But personally, there could have been there could have been another 30, 40 pages of the agency and garden, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha, I gotcha. I I think for this very particular story, it is the right amount, but. I understand exactly what you mean that they're if they wanted to expand this book to 350 pages that you could dedicate a few more um, a few more conversations with between agency or between commandant and red. And I would be very happy with that. I I would not say no to that. (laughs) Yeah. So why do you think they chose to not fully embody agency as a character? Instead, it's just essentially a place. Okay, so, like, this is just me here, but, like, when I think about, like, what a technocratic society would look like, especially one where consciousness experience the world via technology, is that that's really all you have is a bunch of fucking places. Like, if there's no real, like, human experience or, like, anything beyond, like, you know, any type of, like, other mm-hmm. person-to-person experience that's really all you're left with is just places. And if you are traveling around a drone, getting these experiences, like that's really all you really ever know of your reality is just places. Like you don't even really know like the true form of any of these other people that are in, in the agency. So Mm -hmm. why I, so I think like what they're going for here and just of leaving agency as, as a place it's really like symbolic of what that lifestyle actually entails where this is like, this, this really all you have are just places. Yeah. Yeah. I, I dig it. I really dig that interpretation. That's good. Um, I, uh, I like it and I'll, I, I, I took this as a, at least in part a, as a, another war metaphor to sort of expand on the one that I went with before that the soldiers on the ground are very, very far removed from the decision makers. 
that mm-hmm. the people pressing the buttons, sending off bombs, and sending sending you know <laughs> sending eighteen year old kids into battle are so far removed they might as well be invisible. And yeah. so you know the and and as as we mentioned before, it's very clear that agency is definitely more of this. Um, the society that is geared towards war, um, and we can get into a little bit more of that. Um, so it, it would kind of make symbolic sense to have the head of the snake be invisible from the rest of the body. Yeah. Oh, definitely, dude. And that also reinforces your entire idea of the the middle management thing and stuff. Like, we're those people might as the heads might as well be invisible. So we only really need to see certain people in this whole thing mm-hmm. and you know you um by not being able to associate a face with this leadership you the, the option of the place is where you go next and like red even said like you know when she goes to agencies just like spaceship stuff so just maybe spinning around on like a platform or something like that mm-hmm. sometimes so yeah i i completely agree with the idea of the higher ups and everything like that and the people actually making these decisions as, as being invisible it fits the um it fits like everything that they're going for in terms of like the, the setting and metaphors mm-hmm. of, of the story. Yep. Absolutely. So then let's, um, let's go right off of that. Let's piggyback right off that and talk about garden. So garden is both a place and it's embodied as a person, um, or at least a, a physical consciousness that takes over a person. So why do you think that is? Why do you think that decision was made? So if garden is more nature centric, I think, feel that embodying them as a human is kind of the only way that you could really like complete the statement that they're trying to make because I don't know the idea of just garden being the garden, like being a place, it doesn't really complete the, the metaphor for like um, humanity and also like to kind of to, save some stuff for the next question here. Mm-hmm. But um, like, I feel that like what gardens ultimate goals are, which we'll get into in the next question, the reasoning behind that in humans, humans just basically have to be a part of what their overall like goal is. I feel, and maybe not like humans to long story short is it just, it plays into like what their overall goal is yeah. and somewhere in their overall goal. The idea of people and places this or is a more of a complete version of the world. Yeah, I got you. There's the inherent connectedness of nature is Thank you. is yes. why we would have why we would see garden embodied as someone that they wouldn't have a representative. They would be there simply because we're we're we're, we're making the connection that every you know everyone people plants animals were all part of garden. Um, mm-hmm. So so garden would have. Garden probably would have fuck. We can go right to the next question. Garden would have a more vested interest in sort of being personified because Garden has just Garden, if you will, has more at stake. I suppose. Yes. Um, yes. Is, is that where you wanted to go with that? So go ahead and answer the next question if you want. Okay. Garden having more at stake plays into their goal because I feel their ultimate goal is to save the planet, and this whole thing is rooted in one kind of just like Adam's imagine Adam's imagination. And that is like what I imagine a technocratic society to look like. And even like in what we saw in raised by wolves of the war, what's the one thing that's not there fucking trees and plants and nature and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So if a society is going to become technocratic, 
that there would really be no place for nature stuff unless it is basically just to like appease the population. All of those things in nature would be mined and converted and turned into machines and buildings and like hard drives, whatever the hell it is. Mm -hmm. So for a technocratic society to thrive, elements of nature have to like they're not going to be as prominent if a techno if a technocratic society is is thriving and without having nature that's obviously going to throw off a huge balance to the planet and ecosystems and stuff and thus take the planet on a quicker course to you know using up all of its resources like that kind of stuff you know ultimately like killing the planet so i feel that like garden is trying to save the world from this technocratic society and thus actually like like saving the physical world that we live in yeah yeah i gotcha i i i very much agree with what you're saying um i kind of want to take it uh maybe i don't know a step further a step in a slightly different direction because i think you're correct um I, I, I like I, garden to me has the most to lose um, because of what you're saying. Like it, it's very clear that agency agency is, or at least to me, it's like agency is causing more problems than garden is causing. Um, agency seems at least, at least the way it's presented through both voices, agency seems to be the one that is more proactive about mm-hmm. traveling up thread or down thread and through time to do certain things. At least it yeah. seems that way. And it seems to me like Garden is not necessarily like they don't have like they're not trying to win a war, quote unquote. It seems like they're almost like firemen, that they're putting out all the fires that agency is causing. So, so the thread, as we talk about, as is mentioned in the book, and we talked about sort of um, up thread being farther back in time and down thread being uh, farther forward in time. um, They even mentioned in the book that up thread and back in time is more stable. That things mm-hmm. are just like less chaotic, and when you go yeah. down thread, you go essentially toward the direction of agency. Things are more chaotic, and it seems like Garden, as opposed to, you know, trying to, you know, dominate or take over, they're just trying to make sure that the threads don't break. That yeah, things are staying as they are. Otherwise, like complete chaos would ensue. Yeah. The agency here is definitely more proactive. Like I, that is the vibe that I get all the fucking way on that. And the actions and the stuff that they do are, you know, it's leading to like some very bad things here, whether it be the war, planet destruction, whatever the hell it is. And like garden being this more of a representative of nature and stuff like that is trying to keep a harmonious state of nature by going around mm-hmm. and putting out these fires, setting these things straight. Definitely. Yeah, they're they're more than willing to, you know, lay in wait and sort of like, and, and, you know, plant the seeds, pun 1000% intended, <laughs> plant seeds to make sure that things just kind of stay the same versus, you know, versus sending sending blue forward into the future to kill a bunch of people. Like, that's just not their style. Right. That's right. Yeah. Not their style because that's how they win. Right. Exa- exactly. Exactly. All right, Chema, let's move on to just a couple of blind questions here, some wild card questions. Um, we don't know, you know, unlike everything else in the outline, we do not know what we're going to ask each other. Um, and mine are, mine are pretty straightforward, just sort of just sort of questions that I had after after the first episode and certainly after this one. So mm-hmm. um, what are, I don't know, you know what, I'll start it off. I'll start it off. Yeah, go for it, dude, definitely. First one here is a very, is a very D&D type of question, but... <laughs> Who do you think is more powerful, red or blue? 
like, man, like physically it's definitely red, but mentally it's blue. So I'm going to, in this situation, I'm going to have to go with physicality over mentally. If they're like, we're literally pinning the two of them against one another. So I'm going to say red. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, possibly, um, red definitely has more hit points and more damage points. Um, but blues intellect and defense clearly, um, significantly higher. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you just gotta, hopefully red rolls, uh, rolls the right number on that 20 sided die. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, like I literally, I can't pick because I could see, I, like, I imagine this fight like going sort of the way you think it would with red kind of beating the crap out of blue, but like that was the ruse like blue gets mm-hmm. beat up and red loses anyway yeah i gotcha yeah yeah yeah. because blue would be smart enough to know that she's going to lose and, and that kind of stuff yeah, yeah 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 i gotcha so just so there you go that was my that was my D question um how about how about uh, you got a question for me throw one out yes yes um if this book has one flaw what would your one flaw of the book be oh one flaw um I mean, I, I guess I would tie it back to some of the necessary brevity. Like, if, mm-hmm. if you are going to write a novella and you want to keep the, shor- the story shorter and a little tighter, you do have to cut, like, a lot of stuff out. And, um, you know, a lot of that stuff being conversations or explanations for certain things that I would like to have gotten. So, like, it's it's simply the decision to keep it shorter as opposed to making this a more proper, you know, 500 page novel. Yeah. That's honestly like you're in the, you're in the same kind of like neighborhood that I am in terms of like the flaws and, and stuff like that, or in terms of like the, the length and everything like that. Like I just, I get what they're doing, like, but they just, they had to go ahead and do something that I'm going to be interested in and be infatuated with. So like as a fan of the work and this, you know, somebody who's now like read the, read the book. Um, like I just, I just really want like more stuff. I want more time. I want more pages. Mm -hmm. And I am, I rarely like in the position where like I say, like I want more pages. Usually like if I'm in, if I'm reading a book and if I say I want more, obviously like, you know, you might have to add in more pages to like get in there, but I never actually say, give me 50 fucking more pages. You know, usually I'm like, take 50 out of the book, but this is like this really unusual example where I'm like, man, they just could have really given us a little bit more based solely on the fact that I liked it as much as I did. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So Chema, who do you think fired the first shot in the time war? Who? So, I'm going to go with the agency on this one. They seem to be the more aggressive of the two sides and a more aggressive side, I believe would go on offense, any opportunity that they, that they would get. So I could see the agency being the people that fire the first shot. I I'm, I'm in agreement with you here. I think it's uh, I definitely think it's agency. Um, and it probably, this is, this is one of those things that I'd like, I think it's agency, but I, I don't think that there is even and I kind of had this even for to, again to tease a little bit of my adaptation. I, I don't think there is a, a a beginning that you can necessarily find to the quote unquote time war. Like, yeah, it, it and that's sort of again, I think that's sort of a meaningful decision. If you mm-hmm. know, when we talk about like how war is just a huge waste of time. Well, then how about a, how about a war that has no beginning or no end? That seems like a huge waste of time. Oh, colossal fucking waste of time. Yeah, definitely, dude. We're fucking sure. And like, I gotta tell you, I like 
that we didn't that i just like that the war is going on yeah like i i I, I obviously would like to know more about the war itself but the fact that we didn't get to see the start of the war to me just works so much better i mean like because i and my initial thought on that is that if i'm reading the book and like if i think they're going to war over like something stupid i'm my opinion of the overall work is going to shift or be influenced in some way, shape or form. So the fact that like, I didn't really get a lot about the things leading up to the war really helped me like embrace both of the characters. Cause like, if we, um, we, you know, if we would have got all that shit fed to us, it would be like, you know, I think like we would have like these certain connotation clouds that kind of hang over which side you kind of agree with. And it may influence how we perceive the love story you know maybe it could be one of these things where like if we know what starts the war audience members may not want these two to get together but the fact that they drop us in at this you know at this obviously like thought out point in the story it gives us the opportunity to just form our own opinions about the characters as the story's already developing not as the story like the the backstory is already is already in development not as the backstory starting uh, yes, that is really well put. That's definitely going to be a, a sound clip um, when I when I post these. Um, that's really well said. That I, I think that if we did get some sort of clear objective in the time war, other than well, we have to win it, that it really could shade your opinion of both the love story and the characters. If if we if we think that if we think that agency is fighting to stop some something very particular. Or start something very particular, or blue, excuse me, garden is, is trying to stop something very particular. That it's, it, it, if one, it actually kind of makes the story feel real small. Mm-hmm. That like all this to make sure, like a you know, all this to make sure that like um, th- to make sure that that Hitler became an artist, like seems, right. <laughs> you know, see, I mean, obviously Hitler becoming an artist probably would have been a very good thing for the world, but um, yeah. but like it seems trivial, trivial when you're talking about two people and two agencies that can traverse time that seems Mm -hmm. trivial yeah yes exactly yes it really does condense the world down and for a story that is set on multiple strands in a multiverse in a huge huge massive world that is at least like greater than the one that we know now maybe is technology develops we might find out otherwise Mm -hmm. we might be in a multiverse or in a simulation who knows but um they did a great job of really making the, the the core of the story feel like small and stuff and feel like feel personable and everything and not to get the audience lost in this massive massive yeah, world exactly um do you have another question here yeah just yeah. a really quick one um do you think that there's going to be a sequel to this i do not i i, I, I do not, not at least i can and actually i kind of hope not um I think I think we both agreed. I would be very interested to sort of get um, something else in this world, um, you know, like in, in in the way that they've established the rules for time travel, the strands, and like what you could do with that idea. I would be interested to see if they went a different direction. But I do not want to hear more about Red and Blue because, in my mind, things have ended very well for them. Yeah, exactly. I. I don't think that this is like one of these stories where the love has to endure crazy tests that last over the course of multiple novels. 
because even somewhere in there, you're going to lose the point of the whole of what you're trying of the story you're actually trying to tell. And mm-hmm. like, while this is an actual, this is a love story. The, the you know the second book may be a love story or like a war story and a love story's mask or something like that. You know, and sure. I might muddle the shit out of like the the world and the um the not the world, but like the the paths and the directions and the storylines that they've set in this one, in this book, it might kind of cheapen those, like the way a bad sequel kind of does to the original. So I I just want this to like stay as is. I love the idea of expanding the world. Like hey if you want to do like another book that is got two cats of different colors on facing opposite directions. And it's just said in the same world. I'm all for that. But the story of red and blue, I feel has, we've seen its beginning, middle and end. And to mess with that, I, I just, just don't, you know, yeah. we're good. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, just sort of to, to wrap up there real, or to give a, a quick example, if, if they wanted to do um, like James S.A. Corey does with the expanse books, there are like they do have like little side stories for characters that are like 30 40 pages that yeah. just cover like a you know the like the creator of the Epstein drive um Epstein himself gets a um gets like a little side story that um that actually they put in an episode with you know the guy who creates the drive and he dies um trying mm-hmm. to turn it off um yeah. Sol- Solomon Epstein um gotcha okay they do that with certain characters so would I take like a forty-page little side story about something that Blue does? Sure, 30, 30 pages on something that Red does before meeting Blue. Absolutely, don't need any more than that. Yeah, yeah, I I totally got with you. Like I, I know I know what you're going for here, and I know that like other intellectual properties and in literature have done like similar things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so let's move on. We've been teasing it. We're gonna get to our adaptations, aka braiding new knots. Um, to stick again with the lexicon established in this book. Um, Chema is going to handle, as I said before, Chema is going to handle the movie adaptation. I'm taking on the TV. Um, I won't go like through line for line here for sort of the rules that I set up. Um, but just some of the important things that we are going to hit. We're going to make sure that like there are certain elements that are going to stay true to the book. But we're also going to make notes of things that we... Not just changing just because we want to change them. But perhaps because they absolutely need to be changed to make sense in a different medium. Um, We definitely want to get to, since we only get a couple of sort of um, a couple of um, descriptions of red and blue, we definitely want to like get into how we are going to present them, how we're going to characterize them, their appearance, everything else. And then obviously this is kind of a pitch. So whenever we do movie pitches or TV pitches, we are going to give like a general summary, some casting choices, directors, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And then very specifically, I do want to know how you would introduce Red and Blue. Um, and then I, I am very curious about the ending as well. Um, okay. So those are, those are going to be our, those are going to be how our pitches work. Um, you, I don't know, you want to flip a coin or something to see who goes first, unless you want to go first? Let's, um, yeah, let me go first. Okay, And cool. I will kind of just read through everything that I have, starting with some of the rule stuff, and then I'll gradually move into, like, the description and everything. Because I want to, I kind of want to cover some of the stuff that I change and get those out in detail. Sure. So that way I could just kind of walk through a general summary of the story. Gotcha. Perfect. Sweet. Okay. So, 
here we go, cracking the knuckles and everything. So we're going to start off with the which elements I feel need to stay true to the book. So we obviously have to have the war. Like the war has to be there. Um, the communications between red and blue, there has to be some resemblance of like the letters and them having a communication exchange agency and garden have to be in the story and also these butterfly effect style missions those things have to have to be into the mm -hmm. story so like um i feel that uh, you know obviously the communication with red and blue this was vital to the book this has to be replicated in the movie I'm going to do a much better job than they do in Battleship, where they somehow work the game and the bombs look like pegs. I will do a better job of that. <laughs> but um, so, like that communication, that part is vital. That's crucial to the story. Mm -hmm. It has to, some way, shape, or form, be translated into the movie. Um, the war itself, the war is a pinnacle, backbone, backdrop setting of the um, of the, the the book that has to be in the movie as well. Agency and Garden, the two antagonists, they have to be in the story and these butterfly effect style missions while are in the book. Um, I feel that they have to be in the movie as well, but we're going to make some changes and then I will use that to segue into the changes because I have a couple of them here. So when terms of the butterfly effect style missions, I'm going to change them so that way not only do they – I'm 50-50 on the Seeker right now. So like I, I kind of want to explain it almost as if the Seeker is not there because I just time-wise would save me a lot of a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So like let's just say for this example, the Seeker is not there. Um, so what I would do with these butterfly effect style missions is that I would have them actually have like a butterfly effect. So the things that Red does in the first act come back in some way, shape, or form in the story. Now, this could be either like the leaving of the letters. This could be like really like anything. So like, I, I you know, we maybe take some of the things like the, the cave. Um, we take like, obviously not killing a seal. We kind of maybe modify that kind of stuff. Like, so the, these kind of missions and everything like that, and what happens is these missions introduce them to have them come back later on in the story. There's not going to be a, failed mission that just gets shaked off. Anything that we're going to have to introduce on the screen, we're going to have to have resolution somewhere later on in the story. So that's one particular change with the missions. When it comes to agency and garden, we are going to be seeing a lot more of them. We're going to be seeing them early on in the movie to set up this quest for red and blue to go on. Like I, almost feel that the story in the movie would have to be something like they're sent to kill each other or they're sent on some type of collision course together that either may spark the relationship or maybe they even, maybe never even get to that particular mm -hmm. point in the message because they find the letters get distracted or whatever it is. But the key thing with agency and garden is that they're going to have to be the ones that like set them off on their missions. And we're also going to have to use agency and garden <clears throat> to set up something that is going to be like the final showdown. So if this is like using the war, we'll probably have agency and garden um, line up these missions and line up their 
goals that are all kind of converging towards like what would be like a battle of Saratoga battle of so like epic freaking battle. That's going yeah. to like end the movie and stuff. There has to be some type of direction with an identifiable ending point, at least like in this, in these types of stories, especially with war, I think that it's kind of good um, to keep the story focused and heading into some specific direction, saving private Ryan, saving private Ryan is the end. So forth and so on going apocalypse. Now you're killing Colonel Kurtz, like that kind of stuff. They're directional focus for the end. So that's what they're, um, that's what they, that's their roles. And I would also make their motivations abundantly clear as to like why each side wants what they want in the book. We could use the ambiguity there to fuel a discussion, but if we're talking on the screen, it has to be clear and presented to the audience in a way that they understand it. Agency wants this garden wants that they're each standing in each other's way so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's with the agency garden stuff. Um, All right. Then next would actually be the letters. So I do want to keep the communication in there. We will see letters, but I don't think that the letters are going to be something that is used all the time, mainly because of audience fatigue. And when I say fatigue, I'm not talking about, oh, just being tired. I'm talking about the fact that it may lose cleverness after a while even if they do put them in really cool interesting places to be discovered the fact that it's a letter might get old by about the third or fourth time so i'm thinking about keeping some letters in but then maybe using symbols or various other things and turning taking the movie in more of a puzzle movie type direction where you get these messages you get these symbols and then in the end they all kind of come together Mm. in in this resolution so that would be uh, what i'm doing with the letters and like um you know they even could maybe be like the hologram telegrams like we see in star wars or maybe even like some kind of futuristic version of zoom just some type of communication with them that offers variety to not um wear the audience down to the, the just like the letter thing over and over and over again and it might also help in help with bringing in like a younger audience to, you know, so where you're covering all different kinds of forms of communication. It's not just like letters and reading letters over and over again. So then with the uh, war specifically, um, what war's already going to be going on, we are not going to, um, we're not going to do the whole thing with like the start of the war. I am going to, and I think it's going to have to work like this where there's title cards that kind of bring us up to speed. Not a lot of them. And I don't really want to do like a big sequence of stuff where it's just like, Oh, back in 2050, the agency was born. And like, you see all these people looking up at a flashing light. I don't want really Mm -hmm. any of that. I think title cards leading into it would be a good way to kind of just set the story up, give the audience what they need to know. Um, and that we could enter into the actual story itself. And then, like I said, so like the war is going to just be this thing that's used in the background. The war will be more of the motivations of agency and garden. Um, but the, the war will be used to kind of like shape the story and focus the story, um, into some forward going direction. Then, the last thing, and this is a, um, this is one that um, I think would have to happen no matter what, is uh, as much as I love the title of the book, we're going to have to retitle it for a movie. I was very and, curious about this part. Yes. Yeah. So my own, my personal opinion, like this, I know this is going to sound weird, but like 
this is how you lose the time war is relatively pessimistic of a title for something that's like centered about love. And if this were to get translated into a big, into the big screen adaptation, I don't see, and I'm also operating out of the fact that this is going to be big budget for the masses and stuff. An indie flick, you could just take the book and convert it into a movie and not really say much else. But if we're talking about a movie that's going to require a bigger budget with all the different effects and stuff like that, we need to make it as available to the masses as humanly possible. And a love story with like, this is how you lose the time war. It's not really all that optimistic. It doesn't really, it's weird because like, it doesn't, it gives you indication of like a time war, but it doesn't really give you any kind of inclination as to what the story is actually about. And I know that there are sometimes that there are these movies that are titled maybe after like, like a, a stupid thing, you know, that's maybe mentioned once or the MacGuffin is the movie title or yeah. something like that. But like, I feel, um, in order for this to actually be a success, we're going to have to either, um, optimize, like make more optimistic the title or just do like do something like completely like stupid like um like time war. But I'm not saying time war. My two titles that I had written down were like this is how we win. I actually think is a much better title because it's very optimistic. There's mystery to it. Mm. It really does convey what the story is actually about, but not in a are you smarter than a fifth grader sort of way, but in like a kind of like subtextual, very subtle way that that's what the title would be. Or if this was like, you know, really cheesy, I would think Letters in Time would probably end up being the, the title of the movie, especially if it got um, if it got into the hands of a producer who was just really in it for the money. I think Letters in Time somehow would end up being on a movie poster. So um, that is what I would do in terms of some of the major changes. So in terms of presenting Red and Blue. I'm going to personify them both. It's just easier for the audience to make a connection. I do like the idea of being these floating consciousness and maybe even just seeing red and blue dots floating around into different things and bodies would be cool. But in terms of consistency and giving the audience the chance to develop a relationship with the characters, I'm going to personify them both. And if I was just to kind of give a quick like um, breakdown of what I see them both looking like, I see red almost in like a red version of like Mega Man armor without the the helmet and like obviously not a hand for a gun, but red will be in some kind of armor and I can see blue dressed in more of like a um, kind of like a badass like athleisure type suit or something like that. Something that's a, basically not armor and not a mm-hmm. suit and tie combination. So something that um, through their clothes we can get to know the character. We see a warrior in armor and we see a more sophisticated mind wearing something that is to the tune of a more sophisticated persona in terms of clothing and stuff like that. So those are, that's the rule section here. So I'll go into the, the next section beneath the bolded text and a general summary of the adaptation would be, we're going to, like I said, enter in with some title cards that establish the purpose. The title cards will also establish the strands. We might actually maybe even see some of the strands as we do our little introduction here. Um, and then we, through the title cards, establish the elements of agency and garden. Um, I will skip this part for the way in, but then we basically we meet red and blue right off the bat. Um, and I almost want to do the story like red, blue, uh, agency, and garden. So that way we meet everybody within the first, like, 
I'd probably say within the, the first like 10 to 15 pages of the script, maybe 20 at the most. So that way the call to the journey kicks in right after either red or blues meeting with the agency in your garden, going back to what I said before about using them to set the characters on their journey. So that's how I'm kind of seeing like the, the opening of the, the movie without getting into the specifics, which I will get into um, as we go along here. So, you know, once we um, meet everybody, this is when we start to introduce some of the letters, some of these missions that the, the red and blue are a part of. We start to, um, you know, introduce these elements so they can maybe come back later on in the story. Um, the specifics of which I will tell you, I have not quite figured out how to actually re how to bring in the caves mission into the, the end. I haven't quite figured that part out. Cause like, mm -hmm. I just in term in, debating whether or not to go with the seeker or not to them doing no seeker in this. What I would do is I would just have these missions, have these letters, have these communications, these symbols, like basically like, you know, red goes on a mission, completes it. It takes her on to the next step of the journey. There's a, there's a letter or a symbol that is there. These letters and symbols are then collected to be put together in the end, like a puzzle, like, you know, just like how we talked about the war and everything just kind of all comes together at the end and stuff in the second act of the story. We're going to spend a little bit more time with the agency and garden clearly like they have to know something's going on because this mission isn't complete yet. You know, they're, they're, they haven't shown up with a head of red or blue yet. So something's going on so we can develop a little bit more of the agency and garden in this particular time. We could see more of their universes. We could see maybe even like agents and see the commandant and like some of the number ones and twos, maybe garden as a person. Cause I would have to personify both agency and garden for the same reason that I personified the two characters. Once again, it's just easier for the audience to build a connection and for them to develop those emotions that are associated with villains and antagonists like you know, hate and anger rage all that kind of stuff so we're going to get to know them a little bit the story will progress um there's going to be like you know more parts of this mission we can get glimpses into the worlds all that kind of stuff then the first axe missions basically develop the relationship so I'm thinking that by the time the first act ends, the characters are more friendly with each other. And then the overall declaration of love will come at the climax. And in, in the first act, we're going to build into the loneliness, blue, not having any friends, the communication, the, the joy that the communication between the two of them bring together. So by the time we get to the climax, that is the, um, the declaration of love by red and then we could also get that all hope is lost moment shortly thereafter when blue and the husband and there's kind of like this little bit of a rejection there. So that will then kind of set up how we end the second act, which is they are t entirely in love. So they're totally in love, both of them, by the end of the second act. And we're going to use that because in the third act um, – Somebody's going to get in trouble because they clearly didn't follow their mission and now they're in love with the enemy. So what I'm thinking is here's where some other adjustments come into play, um, particularly with like the uh, the end and stuff like that. I am going to still have red and blue be together in the end, but I'm going to kind of make some adjustments as to some of the stuff that happens um leading up to the ending. So just, okay. So, okay. So that's cool. So, um, 
where I'm going to, let me kind of jump to the end here and then I'll work back with the, uh, sure. the casting stuff. So in terms of how we are going to introduce red and blue, what I want to do is rip the first couple pages right out of the book. There's red in the battlefield, awesome visual, like almost like the title cards fade into this imagery of red on the battlefield. That's going to be the introduction. The exciting incident will then be a finding of the first letter. And then once she finds that, we're going to break to blue, who is honestly, this is what I have in mind here. Right? It's mainly because I just watched the, I've been watching the Wolf of Wall Streets in segments for the last couple of days. And I want blue breaking the fourth wall, talking into the camera. And she is saying the letters that are in reds, like the, the wording she's reading aloud or saying aloud the words that red is reading in almost like a mission type situation that plays more into blues personality. So while hmm. red is um, reading the letter on the battlefield, I, I'm honestly thinking about like blue doing something that involves a lot of intelligence where she's talking to the camera and maybe talking to somebody else. So if it's like a chess match, for example, like, uh, the guy makes a move while blue is talking into the camera. Then blue like says something to him, makes a move, goes back to the camera, like that kind of stuff to kind of move the dialogue in this kind of rhythmy way. And mm -hmm. you kind of get through the scene faster and make it a little more unique. So that's how I would introduce the two of them. Um, that would be their, their first introductions on the, um, <clears throat> on the screen. And in terms of breaking away, like significantly from the book, it's definitely the agency and card and stuff is going to be um, a breaking away from the book. I'd break away from the book with the seal as well. Um, I would probably like do something similar where it's, it's something hidden in something else, but it doesn't necessarily involve like animal cruelty. Knowing the world today, it might just be cake. Everything seems to be cake, stuff hidden in cake, stuff being cake. So it could easily be something like that. I have no idea. But I would break away from the book to develop agency and garden more. I would break away from, from that particular scene. And then I'd also break away um, from the ending. And like I said, I'm still going to keep blue and red together in the ending, but I want to do it a little bit differently. So it's obviously it's going to be like, you know, um, blue is held prisoner. Uh, red decides to go rescue her. So the big difference is, and this is, this is where it becomes cinematic here. And this is like kind of like a big difference between like um, movies and writing and stuff. I, and this is also the first thing that I came to. So I just, I just decided to leave it in here is that when garden and agency kind of find out or realize that something is wrong, I want them to team up to get, so the whole thing was basically like in there's time, all this kind of stuff. So the whole thing with agency and garden is this plan to kind of get red and blue in some way, shape or form. And it all kind of culminates at the end. And Red still, like, goes to rescue Blue, but the two of them now together kind of turn on the personified versions of the, of the Commandant and, like, Garden. So, like, Blue is held in, in Garden. When Red shows up there, they eliminate the Garden persona and then somehow in there, like I'm thinking like in, when we're getting into that, like last little bit of a thrill and they think all is OK, Garden is dead. And then all of a sudden the commandant shows up for they have like the one quick final showdown. We learn it was a big master plan and they kind of 
get into a ship and leave the world behind together and like reinforcing the whole, this is how we win thing and their ultimate goal being together, being away from the war. And they just kind of fly off into the sunset with the closing credits. So that would be some of the specifics, the general summary. So let me get into some of the choices here. Um, for casting choices, I I kind of want to go with a little bit of a gimmick here for the two main characters, and I want to use Rose Leslie and Nat- Natalie Emmanuel from Game of Thrones. Um, I think Rose Leslie would obviously be red. Natalie Emmanuel would be blue. Um, I do think that having two characters from a intellectual property that's based off a book as the star of two characters that is based off of a book. I just, I kind of like that. It just kind of like warms my heart a little bit. I also do enjoy those two actors very much. And I think that they would have great chemistry on screen together. I could also definitely see like Rose Leslie rocking like armor and stuff. Cause she'd look really cool. in like the way that they did um the people beyond the wall and the wildling um, like kind of get up and stuff. And um, I want Sylvia Hex uh, love from Blade Runner 2049 to be commandant immediately when we go to Russia, this is kind of the image that came into my mind was of her just being blonde and being badass. And I, she definitely is like a inquisitor type in Blade Runner, but like a, with some fucking power and authority, I kind of see that same imagery translating on screen for Commandant. And um, when it comes to Garden, this is my one weird wild card one. And I, I want to cast Garden as a dude. Just for some reason, I feel that there is going to be one character that could be a dude. I think it's Garden. And honestly, I was I was writing this part of the outline when Jess was watching a Friends rerun that happened to include Gary Oldman. And for some reason, Gary Oldman as this like naturey embodiment type figure with maybe like long hair and it's kind of like hippied out, but also like with large world goals for some reason just really works for me. Like I, I, and I'm telling you, like if it, if we were watching a friends episode with when Brad Pitt is the the special guest, I might have said the same thing with Brad Pitt, but it just a lot of timing and everything coming together here. And I really just enjoy Gary Oldman being garden. So that would be my, uh, the four main uh, casting roles. And then directing i have yet to see this movie i want to see it i've heard nothing but good things i just don't really want to drop 20 bucks on uh, renting a movie from amazon i'd rather pay that to a theater but unfortunately it's not really in theaters anymore and it's daniel kwan or dan kwan and daniel schneider to the directors of everything everywhere all at once Mm -hmm. which is a multiverse movie we're taking place all over the place I literally couldn't think of a couple or better pair to tackle a story where there's a time war that takes place all over the place in a vast multiverse than these two. So with that being said, if there's anything else that I could think that would help sell my pitch is that um, this movie would look really fucking awesome on screen. There is a lot of awesome goddamn visuals. This whole story, I feel being two women is completely relevant with the times this is a story that I think people would see. This is a very unique version of a love story. And this is also like one of these movies that um, I feel you can really have a broad appeal um, 
in terms of like the audience wise. Cause like, if you're, if we're just going back to like your, your basic, almost like stereotypical demographics here, like dudes are going to show up for the war stuff. Women will show up for the love stuff. And like that right there is just more than one ticket being sold. This could easily be like a really cool and interesting date movie. There's a lot of, of appeal to, um, to have this movie, I feel that there's a lot of appeal out there that there's a lot of people that this movie would appeal to. And it's really, really unique and something that I think would really stand out amongst the MCU franchisey kind of shit that we see um, in the theaters today. And that rounds it out. Oof. I like it a lot. I like it a lot. Um, I did take a few notes here um, just to, I didn't, I didn't take notes on every single thing here, but I, I did find it I, I did find it interesting and I think necessary just to, to go back to this point to change the title for a movie that mm-hmm. it you can you have something a title that long I think so but I, you're right with the sort of the the pessimistic angle on it it for a movie I feel like you need to condense it there's very yeah. few movies that can get away with having a super long title um, yeah there are obvious Obviously, there are plenty of exceptions. Um, mm-hmm. You named one when you talked about the directors. Everything, everywhere, all at once is a longer title, but it also is a very descriptive title that of what's going to happen in the movie. Whereas yes. this particular title for the book is sort of, as we mentioned, as we mentioned in the last episode, it's kind of a double entendre. Not a kind of. It's a double entendre, and by that nature, it sort of obscures exactly what's going on. And like the double meaning of what the title means. So for a movie, yeah. you want to sell tickets. You want to make sure people know what the fuck's going on. Yeah, exactly. You want something that could look great on a. Not that this is how you lose the time war wouldn't look great on a poster, mm-hmm. but you're right. There is just this rare crop of movies that are successful with really long titles, and even like everything, everywhere, all at once. Which have you seen? I haven't seen it yet. No. Okay, I, yeah, I, I, I'm getting there. I will get to it. This is like at the top of the list of uh, stuff to see. I opted to see the Northman in the theater and, instead of this, just basically for scheduling convenience. But um, like everything, everywhere, all at once is a movie that like it's that's not like a big budget movie. That's a movie that started off and then got and earned money based off of word of mouth and being a fucking badass movie and stuff mm-hmm. like this particular movie, I think is going to have to be packaged to be like a bigger, large budget summer release. And I, I just like, I feel like the marketing department would not have a fun time with this is how you lose the time or, but would have something have a, a much better time with something that's a little bit more poster TV shirt, uh, conversationally friendly you know like hey i'm going to see spider-man going to see batman not like i'm going to see this is how you lose the time or it's just there's something about like all those syllables Mm -hmm. in terms of a title of a movie that just i don't think is big blockbuster budget exactly and i think um i I really i can't think of like an alternate title but i think you could use something like this is how we win would be like your tagline yeah yes yes um I, I can't like I can't think of a title off the, the and I'll get into mine um, when I when I get into mine I, I have a similar issue with the title not issue but I have a similar reason behind the title as well um, but I can't think of a better one for you right now but I, exactly there would be um, you know for whatever studio is releasing this there'd be people workshopping a ton of shit just to sort yeah. of but but like I said I could imagine some part of the the original book title or some variation of it being your tagline on that poster. Yeah, with without a doubt, dude. And like, 
for as great as this story is, like the, the writers, even like your TV writers that you'll have for your adaptation, like these writers are going to have like work to do here. This isn't like a this isn't like a easier book to adapt. You know what I'm saying? This isn't like adapting Clifford, the big red dog, like any writer that's on, this is going to have like their work cut out for them. And like, I, I feel that there's so many things that are, are ripe here for a movie. We just kind of have to make little small, like tweaks along the way to make it feel more familiar, like a movie instead of familiar, like a book. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I do like that you're emphasizing garden and agency. Um, I went the, I can tell you right now, I went the same route. Um, I, I think because, especially if you're trying to, if this is more of a mass appeal movie and not some real stripped down indie movie, that you do need more characters and mm-hmm. we need more guidance for our main characters. Right. And obviously garden and agency are the ones that provide the guidance. So it makes yeah. perfect sense to flesh them out. Um, to give them more, um, you know, to give them more of a rounded character type to make sure that we have some motivation for their sides. Um, and even if I, I wouldn't go as far to sort of like to explain the goals necessarily, but they do sort of need to have so the agency and garden need to sort of um, be able to tell red and blue that they're there that the very least that there are goals that like, yes, what you're doing is important. You know, you mm-hmm. let me worry about the details. What you're doing is important. Yeah, definitely. Like they, they have to have something more than what we get in the book. And that's, that's clearly for the audience, just so they can understand, like, and have some little bit of a line thrown at them as to like, why this is going on, why Mm -hmm. these people want what they want. You know, it doesn't have to be a super big deep dive. And like, I'll tell you, even like for, I'm sure like knowing our current movie standards, this would be a three hour, five minute long blockbuster. but, um, But like, if we were operating, like, let's just say in the two hour range, we wouldn't really have a lot of time to spend with agency and garden. Like, I I think there would have to be a lot of like develop as you go. So like almost kind of um, how, like when you see these movies and like the bad guys show up to a situation that the hero clearly just foiled, you know, and the bad guys are all like looking around and it's basically like, okay, here's this. We learned now we're on to the next one. We would have to kind of use scenes like that to develop and kind of maybe pad in some like kind of backstory stuff about the the antagonist to keep the story moving forward and not really stall it out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's, and I think you're, um, there's a lot there, but um, just to get back to the time thing, I think you're also making a very good decision to minimize the letters that, you know, show one or two. And then yeah. for the rest of the movie, you, you're right. Symbols and shorthand. So that like, like for the seal thing, you don't even, I think you could I actually think you could keep the seal scene. But what I would do is sort of, you know, blues looking around for a letter and like the seal is just kind of staring back at her. And mm-hmm. she's got to, like, make a face like, ah, oh, shit. Sorry, buddy. Um, yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah That kind you. of shorthand. Yeah. And then, and then you know, like, the next scene, it cut, you know, then it cuts to her sort of, like, wiping fish guts off her hands, you know, seal guts off her hands to look at the letter. Right, right. I got you. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that is more of a um, reasonable way to do a scene like that. <laughs> yeah, right. for sure. But, <laughs> but point being, I, I know exactly what you're going for. We can't show every single letter in a, even a three-hour-plus movie. You can't show every single letter. You have to make choices to sort of, like you said, use the shorthand to like know that like, 
oh, red is red is reading a letter right now, or red has read a letter. Like you would know that that's like what you're going for. Exactly. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah, you probably at the most could maybe get like three full letter readings in, like the initial red and blue, and then maybe one at the end to kind of just remind mm-hmm. the audience of like where the source material kind of comes from and stay true to th- those elements. But yeah, I mean, I'm just like, I'm when I imagine it in my mind and when I was playing through all the different like scenarios and stuff and like, God believe me, dude, like I, if this was like a like four hour long podcast of just the two of us pitching, we could have grinded out into some real nitty gritty details and stuff here. But like when I'm imagining the plot and the story and the movie in my mind, the idea of like cutting away from action to somebody just like reading a letter, even, even if it is breaking the fourth wall, talking into the camera, like I suggested earlier, that's not going to like stay fresh. Like the audience is just going to get sick of like looking at that because they, because they've done it before, you know? And it's weird how even like with some of these like superhero movies and stuff, like, and it's, it is basically all the same thing, Marvel and DC, all of that stuff. It's all the same stuff. But it's amazing to me how they still kind of sort of like make it fucking different. And when you see like Spider-Man fight and everything, Spider-Man's not doing like the same moves and shit like that over and over and over again. And different things are being thrown at him or different. He's led into like different situations where it's like a construction site. And now we have all this other stuff that could be thrown at him and used at him. And it's also relevant to the story. So like – that's what you kind of have to do with some of these letters here is to kind of change it up into in order to keep this communication element from the book into the movie. It's just going to have to be done differently. So the audience doesn't get like, by the time we're 40 minutes into the movie and somebody's going to look over to their, their date or their, their kid or whatever and say like, you fucking believe there's five letters and we're only 40 minutes into this movie. Like that's going to be stuff that like gets the audience um, looking at their watch, like, because, or like maybe going to the bathroom or something, because if they've seen, um, a letter reading thing two other times, when a guy opens up the letter and stuff like that, he's like, all right, I know what's going to happen for the next 30 seconds. I might as well try to get a bathroom break. in." that's the kind of stuff that the audience is going to become aware of. And it's going to take away from the viewing experience of the movie. I totally agree. I totally agree. It's just there. It's, it's like, um, I'm t- like it's basically just when action movies can have too much action in them. Like you, we yeah. can battle too much, and it's just like holy shit, are we fighting again? Are we shooting again? Can we talk about why we're doing this? And right. There is, and, and obviously this would be a little bit different, but there is sort of an overload that you get in a movie. Um, I, and I, I think you, ha- I not I think I know you had the harder adaptation of the two, and I say that because um, as I'll, I'll, I'll explain to myself, in my when I go through my television pitch, I'm using the letters as a very purposeful device. We are yeah. going to get letter reading every single episode. Oh um, yeah. That would, that would because be like it, one of the hooks and stuff. Yeah. Exactly. It, it sets up so much better to have that episodically. Yeah, definitely dude. Like it's weird when I was writing this, I was actually thinking about um, to cast, to cast a deadly spell and how like when they do, when Fred Ward hands his business card and somebody says, Oh, it's the wrong card or you're a plumber or whatever that is. They only do it three times. And it's the first 30 minutes into the movie. After that, you never see it because that joke is going to get tired. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just this reason that we don't do shit over and over and over again in movies. Right. But 
it, we do things over and over again in television because they become signatures of the show. Exactly. Exactly. There's and 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 sort of so that like particular device and some other things are just easier. They as I found, uh, they're just easier for me to adapt in a very particular way. So yeah, um, definitely. But I definitely love I love the adaptation. Um, well thought out. Some really good, again, really good crucial decisions to sort of to make sure that you actually got like the whole story in um, without it being like a four hour, you know, fucking director's cut um, or, you know, there could be a four hour director's cut. You know, who knows? Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think you made all the right choices to keep it to to keep the spirit of the book um, and the point of the book alive throughout the movie. I definitely think you did that well. Hell yeah, dude. I'm interested to hear what you got to say. I'm going to grab the uh, pen and paper to make a couple notes. So lay on, lay the show on me. So I'm, I'm going to go through mine a little bit differently. I'm going to give you the summary and then I'm going to go through like the casting and stuff. I'm going to point out where the differences and the similarities are. Yeah. Um, so, you, so don't worry, you'll be able to keep up with it easily. So <clears throat> obviously as a major beat that we're keeping... We are going to be following Red and Blue as they track each other backward and forward throughout the strands of time. Um, so, like, that obviously major component that's staying in place. We can't dispense with that. Um, as I mentioned as I mentioned right before the summary to getting into it, a letter from each will comprise a very significant portion of the episode. In And I, and I say a significant portion of the episode in the same way that the books... I am sort of stealing book for uh, format because it's, it does, again, the episodic nature of a TV show, this makes sense will have sort of a setup in the same way that in in Time War you had these chapters before the letters where we get at least some explanation for like where they are, what they're doing, what happened before. Um, you know, we get Red's thought, you know, point of view right before she's going to read one of Blue's letters. Um, so it is going to follow a similar format to that where we're going to have some setup and then the letter is going to comprise the rest of the episode. Um, so th- so in this in this sort of scenario, think of the letters and like the flash, the flashbacks in Lost, right? We're gonna follow them at various points in time in these flashbacks. Um, I, you know, I, I guess calling them flashbacks isn't accurate since they kind of they'll, they'll appear at any point in time in time. Um, but uh, so so flash sideways, flash forwards, flashbacks, however you want to look at it. Um, and so each episode, um, sorry, excuse me, I made a second note here. I'm gonna get to this first. Um, Red is going to narrate the letters from Blue. Blue is going to narrate the letters from Red. Um, so the whole episode won't be narrated, but we'll get bits and pieces here during the flashback. So whatever Blue's doing, we'll get a little bit of Red narration. Whatever Red is doing, we'll get a little bit of Blue's narration. So it is very much like they're reading the letters aloud to us. Um, as sort of like a little, as like a little twist, um, as a little twist here. Each episode will have red and blue present in each other's flashbacks. They just don't realize that they're there. Um, so we are, you know, one of those one of those seeds that we're going to plant at the very beginning is that from basically throughout their entire lives, they've been crossing paths. They just aren't aware of it until one of them, you know, breaks blue, obviously breaks uh, protocol and corresponds with red. Um, that's when obviously they begin looking for each other and trying to remember if they have been in each other's lives uh, at any point in time. But as the audience, we'll already know with that. We'll, we'll already know that. So, again, obviously, we're sticking with the important beats um, about, you know, about them being time-traveling warriors. Um, but we are going to get a more detailed look at their factions and motivations. I think that's super important um, for any visual adaptation of this. We, we need... 
we just need a little bit more um, from that side of things to, as I, as I mentioned before, to act sort of as a guide for each character. These, you know, if, if we are to believe that these are soldiers, we need their commanding officers to at least guide guide them and, could, you know, conversely guide the audience a little bit towards some very specific things. Like we mentioned before, like you mentioned in your adaptation, we need at least some information on why each side is is fighting each other. We need some information yeah. on their goals. It doesn't have to be super specific, but we do need to know that, well, you know, like it could even be a fucking lie, right? Mm-hmm. We could have right. Commandant lie to Red and say, well, it's because if Blue wins, this happens. And conversely, Garden could lie to Blue and say, if if Red, if Common, if uh, Agency wins, this is what happens. In fact, I actually think that should be sort of the um, that would sort of touch on the my sort of overarching theme for this book. One of my overarching themes for this book: the meaninglessness of war. The commanding officers are just going to fucking lie to their soldiers, and you know they're going to push them into precarious and dangerous situations that they have to go through and follow because that's how things work. So mm-hmm. the goals could even be a lie, or they could be true. It doesn't really matter, but we do need just a little bit more guidance in that regard. So I'm with you on that 100. percent um, I'm going to get into the casting, and this is where I'm going to pull some like differences and stuff out. So, um, again, the episodic nature of, of a TV show, of a TV, excuse me, of a TV series, and sort of the way that we are um, at, at the drop of a hat, sort of switching bodies, is going to be a key component of of um, both red and blue. So there are going to be different actors portraying red and blue at various times, um, which also does help us. Sneak in, um, sneak in the various, you know, the sightings of red and blue across in each other's flashbacks without them knowing. Right? We're gonna have different looking people, but people that we'll obviously recognize that we'll know ahead of time are red or blue popping up here and there. Um, yeah. So, just I'll start with red and the three actors that are portraying red. I'm gonna start one. I have to give. I was trying to. I'm trying. I was trying to work in a raised by wolves reference here. R.I.P. Raised by wolves. Um, so my first personification of Red is going to be played by Selena Jones, who played Grandmother in, Ra- in Raised by Wolves. Yeah. Um, I want this, you know, I want this, I, in terms of like the specifics, how many episodes she shows up in, I, I don't know, but I know that the beginning, the very first incarnation of Red, I want Selena Jones to play. Selena Jones is six foot two, very, as we mentioned before, so very striking looking. She almost doesn't look human she's so she's so striking and attractive and so tall it's just like one of those qualities that like these supermodels have selena jones has it in spades and i think that that sort of that sort of look that selena jones has would work very very well for this um soldier that is from a a, 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 some indeterminate time in the future and may or may not even be a human being i think that selena jones works really well um and then we're going to transition from there to Jesse James Keitel, trans actress, um, most notably in Big Sky, currently in, I think, the Queerest Folk revival. Um, and uh, she was uh, pretty fucking awesome in an episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And I think this is extremely important because this is very much a queer text. And the you could, you could not so, um, you don't have to dig that deep to find the trans allegory with them swapping bodies and swapping sexes. It's not really that hard to, to, to pull that out. And I think that would be an important thing to hit uh, in this particular adaptation. And also, Jesse James Keitel is just a really good actress. So 
it, I think that would that would be a, a great place to go there. And then I'm going to finish off with Christian Serratos as my last incarnation of Red. Um, basically, I just want the the actors the actresses that play Red. I want their baseline to sound, kind of be tall, badass women that look like they can just beat the shit out of you. That's what I'm going. <laughs> Who is who is the last person again? Christian Serratos from uh, Walking Dead. Oh, so, gotcha. Selena. Gotcha. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So that's who's portraying Red. Again, I don't know the specifics of when. You know, I don't. I can't say that for sure. That like, oh, Jesse James Keitel will be in episodes two and three, and Christian Serratos three and whatever. But for sure, I definitely want Selena Jones to start things off because she is so very unique and striking looking. Um, she, she kind of, again, as we mentioned, our, our raised by wolves, um, episode, she, I, I couldn't imagine someone better cast as an Android than Selena Jones. No, absolutely not. That she is just fucking perfect for an Android casting the same way that Amanda Collin is the same way for, is a perfect, uh, yeah. casting for an Android. Exactly. Definitely. So moving on to blue, blue is going to be very different. Um, and I'll, I'll sort of give you the, 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 the characteristics that I'm going here for blue. Um, you know, she's a little bit more, obviously she's more refined. She has a little bit more whimsy. She's someone of the world. Um, so I, I don't want, I, I don't want actors that are again, like, um, I, I, I don't need like an MCU quality type of uh, leading actress to portray blue. Um, I, I don't need to feel like she can kick ass necessarily. I just need, I need the actors, I need the actors that portray Blue to feel competent, basically. So I went with a lot of people that show a lot of competence in the, in their previous roles. Um, to sort of start off here as a little bit, to, to reference Game of Thrones again, I want Amelia Clark to play one incarnation of Blue. Um, someone who certainly had some, you know, enough physical moments in Game of Thrones, but, you know, how did she win all of her battles? She, you know, for the most part, had to scheme and outthink things, outthink her opponents before, obviously, she, you know, had giant dragons at her back. Um, and even then, she wasn't necessarily the one doing the destruction, right? She mm-hmm. was, she was the, she was the one moving the the chess pieces in place, right? Yeah, that's right. So I want Amelia Clark to start off. Uh, then I want, um, I want the next incarnation of Blue to be Matt Bomer, um, of. Uh, White collar, um, currently on Doom Patrol and various other um, various other uh, TV roles. I I feel like when I when I see <laughs> when I think of someone who's very competent, a very competent character, Matt Bomer is one of the things that immediately enters my mind. Matt Bomer is like so put together and seems like he could just pick up any skill that he wanted to at any point in time. Uh, yeah, this guy looks really fucking. He looks as smart as he is good looking. Let me put it to you this way: If there's yeah. ever uh, two planes where intelligence and beauty collide, it is this Henry Cavill looking like motherfucker right mm-hmm. here from Ma- Groves, Webster Groves, Missouri. Of all That's places. right, right. And uh, and he and again, one of those things that like this is just sort of. I was thinking about him anyway, but as like a bonus, this this book being a queer text, Matt Bomer's gay. It just sort of fits um, with the the kind of vibe, the general vibe this book is putting out. Um, final incarnation again, someone who is capable and smart. Um, I'm going to go with Emmy Raver Lampman from the Umbrella Academy. Um, someone who, in especially in the most, I haven't I haven't watched this current season yet, but um, going back to her turn in the second season, where she is not she's not kicking ass necessarily. She is more in touch with emotions and more in touch with, um, you know, how to outthink things. And again, I think that's like one of the 
that's one of the overwhelming qualities of blue. Blue is patient. Blue is smart. I want actors that also kind of reflect that as well. Yeah, definitely, dude. I have only watched the first episode, which I'm not going to lie, it was kind of on in the background. And I will say that it opens up with a very entertaining uh, sequence for sure. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm like, I'm gonna get to it. I just, like, I literally just finished up um, uh, Stranger Things, so like, I'm, I'm, I'm a couple weeks behind the, uh, I'm a couple weeks behind Netflix and the pop culture zeitgeist. So, yeah, um, I'm still, I'm way behind, dude. I'm way, you're way more <laughs> ahead than I am. So yeah, <laughs> it's. And by the way, Stranger Things, good season, very good. Uh, God, I will talk about it later. Yeah. But yeah, oh God, yeah. yeah. Um, for Commandant, this is one of the big sort of departures, uh, and for two reasons. One, I'm going to have Commandant, I think, in every single episode. Or, I shouldn't say that, I, I'll, Commandant or Garden will be in every single episode. Um, however, Commandant is going to be a voice-only performance. Commandant will communicate through devices. You know, like if there's a, a cracked radio on the ground, you know, in a World War II battle. Commandant's going to communicate to Red through that radio. If there's a, a broken TV in, a, in an abandoned house, Commandant's mm-hmm. going to communicate through that. It's going to be voice only. Um, and this is to sort of reinforce the idea that the, um, the agency as this technocratic society is, is so far removed from the front lines that we never actually see the person who's giving the, who's giving the commands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to have the, I'm going to have the voice, uh, be Australian actress, Claudia Black, who does a lot of voice work, um, in video games, animated stuff. She, she has a very, she has a very distinct voice and, and, and Australian accent. Like it's kind of one of those voices that's unmistakable. Yeah. It, it's, it's just a really, there's a reason why she's in like dozens of video games because she's got a great voice. So <laughs> it, it, you know, so I, that, that's my choice. It's very recognizable. You will at once you understand that this voice is the commanding officer, you'll never mistake that voice for anyone else's. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, definitely. That is by far and away. If you're going with one of those characters where you are never seen, a distinctive voice is like a must have yeah. for sure. Uh, conversely, when we see, we're going to see Garden all the time. Um, you know, we're physically going to see him. And, and I say him because I kind of like you, I was like, for some reason, that just feels like a man for some reason to me. Um, I don't know if I can, I can, put a finger on it but garden will always appear the same to blue like we're not going to have anyone else stand in we're not going to do the same kind of switching for um you know for the actors it's going to be the same person each time and i just think that michael sheen would fit this role and be kind of fun in this role <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> much like how i envision gary oldman as like some kind of hippie s thing michael sheen in longer hair and like a beard and stuff mm-hmm. yeah, I, I could see that for yeah. sure and and sort of and as I'll, as I'll get to some of this stuff in a little bit here, this is going to have at various points a lighter tone. And Michael Sheen is the kind of actor that can that can just easily in the same scene bounce from seriousness to comedy, um, you know, in a few lines. And, and like mm-hmm. I, I so like I need someone that can do that, that can be a little can be just a little bit offbeat when we're doing that kind of stuff. So Michael Sheen, I think, would be great. Great for it. Oh, Totally, dude. Like, even going back to his stuff in 30 Rock and everything, he does do a great job with the comedy and everything. Mm-hmm. And I've seen him in serious roles, so, like, I know for sure that that is, like, a guy who could switch back and forth. Yeah. Almost, like, within the same scene. Yeah, Michael Sheen's pretty... I Any excuse to see Michael Sheen. Um, that, yeah. That's sort of the point here. 
Um, so obviously, you know, I don't have a director specifically, um, but uh, you know, TV shows have showrunners. Um, they are essentially the director of the entire series. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, first instinct was like, oh, this feels like a Damon Lindelof joint. Um, of course, and I and I don't think that I, that would be wrong, but I opted for Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan, showrunners of Westworld, um, director and writer of Reminisce, Reminiscence. Um, and I, I opted for them because some of the things that people ding them um, for Westworld, I think would actually be strengths here. There's mm-hmm. there's a lot more emphasis on, there's a lot of things in Westworld that don't make sense logically. Like if you really <laughs> plot them out, because they're going for emotion and the personalities and the reactions of the, of the characters. They're Basically, mm-hmm. it's character first, even though it's a, sci- it's a heavy, heavy sci-fi story. It's right. characters first. And that is obviously the, the utmost importance to this book. It is, it is 90% character, 10% sci-fi atmosphere in the book. Yeah. So I, I think their sort, of, um, their sort of emphasis on that would work really well in a book that is very much character facing. That mm-hmm. who cares about the certain logic of time travel? When what we're gonna we're gonna use it as a tool to sort of explore these emotions, I just think that Nolan and Joy would be perfect for that. Versus not that not that Lindelof could not do a good job of it. I just think that it fits their their style so perfectly. Yeah, dude, I'm I'm seeing where you're going with this for fucking sure, and I feel that like Westworld sort of like back themselves into this really unusual corner and they've been trying to get themselves out of it ever since. And while I have found the show entertaining, I still feel that like as every new season goes along, they're still trying to like back themselves out of that, like season one finale and stuff that just went all out and everything. And with this, everything is just more condensed. So I think it might give them the opportunity to focus the show a little bit more on where the focus needs to be instead of this like juggling act that they do with some of the characters on Westworld and stuff. And like, I'm telling you, like there are times where like, I feel that, that, almost everything beyond the finale of the first season is just like, okay, this is what happened. Now we just have to like work as off a result of it and stuff. Like I, I almost feel that like the second and third seasons are nowhere near as organic as the, the first season was. So by giving these, by giving them like certain constraints, they're more than likely going to be able to maximize the potential of this particular story, which, you know, would like, basically kind of covers the same shit as Westworld with the exception of like a, a, a time war. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Although I will disagree with you. I, I don't think that they put themselves in a hole. I think that that's just where they were going with this all along that this was the track that, and it's, and what I think is that people that a lot of people didn't want this to be the track. But if you, if you're familiar with a lot of Jonah Nolan's work, like person of interest, this is the track that it was always going down every single moment. It was going down this track. Yeah. It's like for me, for some reason, like it, it just doesn't feel like that t- to me. And I, I don't, maybe that is just because of the, the, the crazy kind of like jumps in between the seasons and the, like, and at least like where these people find themselves. But like, if, if this was the track from the beginning, then then kudos to them because they totally threw me for a loop. Like I'd never thought that the show would go, 
where it's gone. I kind of thought we would be in the park for pretty much the entire duration of the show. Like I never thought we'd get to right. where we are with Aaron Paul and the world outside of it. Right. And again, like it's, uh, that's at the core of person of interest is a machine that controls the lives of people. Mm-hmm. So that's where we're always going. Like it's, it, <laughs> you know, like, but you know, Lisa joy, um, it's actually Jonah Nolan's wife. Um, Lisa joy's background is more in poetry herself. So, yeah. It's to me, none of this is surprising where this ended up, that it's we're taking a train that is going in a very particular direction. And there's going to be a lot of emphasis on reaction and emotion versus logic in the story. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, totally. Which, again, makes perfect sense for this particular property. Um, So for some other stuff here, just to fill out before I get to um, some specific scenes and stuff in keeping with the modern pop culture flair of this book. There's going to be a ton of notable pop culture references in dialogue, in the background. Maybe there's like a movie poster for something. Uh, maybe that Mrs. Levitt's book will be just like very in various shots. Um, mm-hmm. It's also, we're also going to, since there was a big deal made about music, there's going to be a lot of notable pop music filling up various scenes uh, throughout this, throughout this, um, throughout this series. Um, I do think it's important in this case to have a actual visualization of what the timeline looks like. And Mm -hmm. I say that because, so we're going to be, we're obviously going to be jumping through throughout points in time. I think the way that I'm, I'm kind of picturing this is again, I I know I mentioned before, think about like a big piece of rope with, you know, that's, that's wound together. That's braided together very neatly with some stray pieces hanging off here and there. That's sort of what it'll look like, but it'll be this big holographic representation of that, um, of this rope with the t- with the with the freight ends, and actually at one end up thread in back in time, it'll be more tight, and then the visual representation down thread in the future will be much looser, more frayed, with fraying pieces here and there in the middle. And mm-hmm. the the reason why I want to give this actual visualization is to sort of as we chart where red and blue are, because there's they they talk they both talk about how they can be tracked, right? Like they their their agencies know where they are essentially at any point in time. So I want a visual representation of that tracking. And as, as we advance in the story to various points where they become closer, they will be physically closer on the, on the threads. And then when we have the, the part where they're separated longer in time and blue kind of puts the brakes on, on, um, you know, uh, red's proclamation of love. The next episode will show, will show the, you know, the time map essentially with them farther apart. So mm-hmm. as as we advance in the story, they're going to be moving farther apart or closer together. Um, so it's it's you know double it you know it's two for two purposes there to actually show that we're charting where they are in time and space, but then we're also seeing where they are in relation to each other relationship wise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want this holographic image. Think of, think about like a big control room kind of deal. Yeah. But like I want the thing sort of behind glass that's. It's hard to like, you know, almost like mirrored glass, not quite, but like it's hard to see through. So we never have a clear idea as to who's actually monitoring it. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, yeah, 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 totally. It just one of those, one of those little like sort of, uh, you know, it, an, a little bit of point of ambiguity just so it throws off like, well, then who the fuck is like, is there a third party here? Is this agency? Is this garden? Like who, who the fuck's watching? But just so that we know they're being watched, basically. Yeah. Um, and as the story progresses, red and bl- I, 
I don't want like red to have red hair or blue to have blue hair necessarily, but they will have something on them that is either red or blue. So like I'm picturing the open, you know, I'm picturing when we first meet red, her in more of a military uniform that has like red badges or patches on it. Um, you know, blue carrying like a, a, you know, a handbag or a cup or something in her hand that's blue. So they'll have that sort of, you know, that little like totem. And as we progress through the story, they'll actually both incorporate different shades of red and blue in their various personas. So, you know, maybe in for one mission, red is wearing like a big, I don't know, like a red coat or something, but like it has like blue um, tassels on it or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I gotcha. All right, so I'll I'll get to my intro and ending scene here, and this will sort of this will wrap up, um, you know, this will wrap up uh, my adaptation. So the intro scene, we're gonna start with the we're gonna start with a split screen of the same London street. The Chiron is gonna note that it is in fact that it is in fact London. We'll see it like in big print, but the split screen we're gonna have like some numbers fade in. On one side, it's London in sixteen sixty five. On the other side, it's London in twenty six sixty five. Um, the 1665 version is bustling, um, with uh, a bunch of dirty people, um, out in the streets as, as everyone, as everyone knows, people in London pre-1800 were just covered in dirt. So everyone has to look like that. Um, the 2665 street in London is in complete ruins. Buildings on background are in fire. There's gunshots. It's just fucking chaos. Um, and then at, in the split screen, we're going to have red and blue move into frame. Obviously, red is in 2665, blue is in 1665. Um, we're going to focus on blue first. Um, so she's also looking like a dirty... So in this case, it's going to be Amelia Clark, basically, opening up here with blue. Um, she's also going to be kind of similarly covered in dirt. Um, and she's going to stop to buy her favored rosehip tea leaves from a street vendor. Um, then we're going to see her sort of... Uh, quietly take a little vial from her pocket um, and deposit the leaves in it, shake up the shake up the vial, and then she quickly drinks it. Uh, we switch back to Red, who is kind of in a... She's staring down a... Um, she's got a big-ass machine gun, a pepper box machine gun in her hands. Um, she's in her... Um, she's in her kind of red... Red-tasseled, red... Uh, uh, you know, red-accented uniform, just looking like a big badass... Um, and we see her kind of point of view. There's like a whole horde of cybernetic zombie soldiers running at her full speed, um, tearing up the uh, tearing up the ground as they run at her. Um, she's getting ready for battle. We're going to switch back to blue. We see the concoction take effect as a kind of we visually are going to see it sicken her. She's going to kind of like turn a real pale color. Perhaps we can go ahead and make her turn pale blue. Why not? Um <laughs> Then she's going to give a big smile and surreptitiously place a tiny little earpiece, but clearly like a, a piece of future tech so that we know that she's a time traveler. Um, she's going to place it in her ear and then kind of tuck her hair over top of it. Uh, then she's going she's gonna to quietly whisper um, the title of a song, Kiss Me Deadly by Lita Ford, and that begins playing in the background as she makes her way down the street. Um, we're going to switch back to Red as the music kicks in for both of them now. Um, Red begins marching down the street, firing her machine gun, just killing fucking hordes of cyborgs, blood going all over the place. It's just a huge fucking mess. We're going to switch back to blue. Music's still going. She's going to be sort of almost dancing through the streets as she makes an effort to greet and touch everyone along her way. Um, and we're going to zoom in to see tiny virus particles escaping her mouth as she spreads the great plague of 1665 throughout the streets of London. Um, we're going to make sure that, uh, we make note of her really touching people, saying hi, whatever. She is, in fact, the agent of death. Um, switch back to Red. She runs out of bullets, um, so she throws her big gun aside, 
And this is where we get like our first, our most notable hint that Red isn't quite a person. She's going to transform into this sort of like armored sort of beast, metal blades for arms. And then she's just going to begin cutting through um, all of the remaining cybernetic zombies. Um, just again, a huge bloodbath in the streets of London. Um, so then we're going to have a split screen as Red and Blue sort of rhythmically make their way down the same street, killing and infecting everyone in their path. They both finish their mission at the same time in an empty alley. Um, at which point Red returns to her more conventional human form, again, Selena Jones at this point, um, just completely covered in blood, very similar to our opening scene of the book. Blue's going to finish at the same spot, and she's going to turn off her music that she has playing in her ear, which turns off, cuts the music for both of them, and they're both going to stop and look down through the alley that they're both standing at the either end at, and very clearly staring at each other, though staring at nothing. Thousand years apart in time and, and different strands, but completely aware, aware of each other's presence, and then we cut to the title card. Fuck yeah, dude. Fuck yeah. That is a solid opening right there. I think so. And then there's a little bit more to it, that, but it's not as important. Like, we're going to, like, sort of suspend time for both of them, and that's, like, our first appearance for, um, in, in, again, in, in the same scene. We're gonna, not going to do a split screen, but in the same scene, um, we're going to get our first introduction to Commandant and our first introduction to Garden to mention, like, in this case... We're going to mention that both of them are going to mention that um, there's another agent that is on to them, that is aware of them, that is looking for them to sort of mm-hmm. set up the inciting action. It's it's not specifically that it is red or blue in either case, but just that they've been found out. And so that sort of sends them both on a path to sort of seek each other out. So, yeah, in this case, I am sort of taking taking blues initial contact out of, the you know, I'm taking that sort of part of it away. So they're going to sort of they're going to be sort of um, they're going to mutually run into each other at some point in time in that first episode, as opposed to it just being blue making first contact. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. The opening, um, the end of the opening sequence will set that up for sure. Exactly. So just uh, let's fast forward to the ending scene here. It's going to be very similar to um, how the book ends in terms of red being in this uh, agency prison, um, this military prison. Um, So it's going to take place in there, but there is going to be more direct help from Blue, um, post-mortem Blue, um, in helping her escape. Um, obviously, her plan worked, so Blue, you know, while they think Blue is dead, Blue's actually alive, Blue is going to do some more things to help out directly. Obviously, you know, like taking out guards or, you know, planting, planting certain seeds that will help her uh, in the future. So, um, so there is more of an active role for Blue. And I am going to have them physically meet, because um, mm-hmm. I think that's going to be very important for how I'm picturing the end here. So we're going to kind of echo the first scene, the opening scene from the first episode here, but it's going to be Red fighting her way through a hallway of her own, uh, you know, her own fellow soldiers or agents or operatives, however you want to think about them. But it's going to be very similar to the opening scene where she has got to fight, where she's fighting her way through a hallway the same way she was fighting her way down the street. Um, but, in, but in this case, the, um, if, if we wanted to completely echo it, we can have Blue fighting as well. But we are going to completely echo it. But in this, but in this time at the ending, they're going to finally see each other from across that hallway um, and physically meet. And then, of course, they're going to kiss. Um, the kiss is sort of is going to set off. Um, I don't know how else to describe this, but like waves through time, um, yeah. through all the strands that they. So we're going to see them in various strands throughout all the episodes. Their kiss is going to set off their love, if you will, is going to set off these huge waves through time. And it begins to undo all the strands that we previously saw previously saw them in. So everything they've done in the past is just being ripped to shreds. Yeah. Um, 
so everything up thread is in chaos, everything down thread is in chaos, and I'm gonna show that like on the big map, literally like the the strands of this like big rope just completely unwinding and splitting apart. And as like the waves rip through time, we're gonna sort of do like a little. We can do like a little flashback to show to expose to both of them like who the, who they were in each other's flashbacks that they have been there throughout each other's lives throughout time, you know, appearing here and there. Um, and then, you know, when they, you know, as the, as the time ripples or the time waves begin catching up with them in the present or where they are in, in, in their particular portion of the braid, um, it literally begins to rip time and space apart. So the huge, like a, you know, this huge ripple, like we, again, we're, going back to like the holographic representation, the rope is now completely fucking split apart. Um, and to their benefit, because of how badly damaged um, time and space are, they can no longer be tracked. Huge fucking, not a huge, but a, a hole opens up in time. They, uh, they, after they get done kissing, they share a look, jump through this hole in time into the unknown, but presumably away from the time war and away from garden agency and off to whatever their life is. Fuck yeah. Again, with the fuck yes. That is a solid, solid ending. And actually, like, that would totally, like, I guess, that would totally, like, just match up with how you set it up in the um, beginning and everything like that. Especially with, like, leading with them actually meeting and kind of the visual presentation of that whole thing. Mm -hmm. And, like, the idea of them just jumping off into the unknown, but it's impl but it's implied. I think is actually more powerful than like seeing them 10 years down the road or whatever. Oh, you know, for sure. Like, flat or 10 years or whatever. Yeah. I would, I would, I just couldn't do that. <laughs> and like, yeah, I was, I wasn't going to like, I'm, I'm like, if you had, I was thinking, I'm like, if you end this with like some kind of like, Oh, and then they lived, you know, then they lived happily ever after. And here's what they were doing and blah, blah. Like if you went into detail of it, I'd be kind of disappointed. I knew you wouldn't, but but like that was one of those things. I just want them to the the implication is that like especially like I'm, as I'm picturing this, they jump through like this crack in time, if you will, um, and literally their signals disappear off the holographic, you know, altogether. They're just yeah. gone. We can't track them anymore. They're gone. They're happy now. That's all we need to know. Yeah, and like the thing with um, so that the rope and the holographic representations and all that stuff, like. That's pretty fucking vital. And when you mention that, like, I know that somewhere in the television landscape, there's like a similar device that a show uses that is something that has double meaning like that does, too. I can't think of what the hell it is or it might not even it might even be in a movie. Mm -hmm. But like that right there, it's going to be something that like once people have seen it enough and kind of pick, you know, your, your smarter viewers are going to pick up on that within the first like episode, but like, that's going to become one of those things that like, as people slowly, slowly become more aware of what it actually is, that's going to become like a vital fucking piece to the whole like story in and out of itself. Mm -hmm. And like, when you get to the end, people will have enough of the, um, enough of the awareness of what's actually going on to make the simple shot of just a red and blue light going dim on this thing that much more impactful. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. That's exactly what I was thinking. Um, oh, forgot to add here as the, as the, as we get like these like big time ripples and we get to see like their flashbacks and where they are in it, we have to close out with Roy Orbison's. You got it. Um, playing over everything, um, everything you want, you got it. Everything you need, you got it. And then they disappear uh, and the song ends. 
Yeah, that's a really good choice. The, the, including pop music in this whole thing will again, it's good. Like how Stranger Things does, like in the, what we're seeing with this Kate Bush song, mm-hmm. it, it, it's like depending on what song it is, like and where it is used in the show. That's these you could be breathing second and third lives into songs that were, oh, for sure. you know, that sustained somewhat of a relevance throughout the course of time or hell, you could be doing something that, um, or giving a, a unexpected shot of relevance into a song that no one knows about. Oh, for sure. For sure. The, the Kate Bush thing is fucking fascinating. <laughs> like it's, it, it's really fascinating. And sort of one of the things that like, I don't want to get too deep into this. It's just one of those things that like, it, it, this couldn't have happened at any other point in time than now. Like, yeah. if you do this, do the same thing for an obscure, although that, I mean, that Kate Bush song isn't obscure. It just wasn't like, wasn't super popular um, back right. in 85 or 87, whatever it was, 86. Um, it wasn't super popular, but, you know, it's like a top 30 or top 40 song. But like, um, again, imagine like a 1980s movie taking a late 1950s song that, wasn't super popular it doesn't suddenly gain traction again that is that can only happen today and now yeah that, that's exactly right like the god like the only like earlier examples we have of this would be like when it's benny king the, the stand by me when that when like the song was popular before yeah. and then had that but mm. but like look at like literally like look at like everything that kind of had to happen for that to happen. You know, this movie being so popular, Stephen fucking King being associated with this mm-hmm. movie coming from one of his stories. There's a lot of like a young river Phoenix. Like, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that, um, you know, like young Kiefer Sutherland, like, I mean, they're stacked. The cast, that cast is so stacked. loaded. So like, I mean, like take all those things and like, look at like all those things that had to happen in order for that song to, to, to get where it is. Now it's just like, yeah, the song was in an episode of stranger things and people went to Spotify as soon as they got done watching it. You know, it's way, way easier for something like what we're seeing with this Kate Bush song to happen now than it was at any point in time in entertainment prior to like 2015. Right. Exactly. Random, random tangent here. I wonder if that was even their first choice for a song. Believe me, I have wondered that myself, and it makes me wonder which ones, if there were other options, what exactly those other options were. Well, regardless, whether or not it was forced or they chose it, they made the right choice. It, it just like it just makes per like it fits so fucking well. But anyway, um, yeah, that's that is that is the end of my adaptation there. Um, uh, one oh, uh, for, I forgot to note, I I was thinking about how I could include the seeker. And I just felt like for the way my adaptation was going, it just wasn't necessary that yeah. we can kind of, we can kind of come to the same sort of conclusion a different way. Even if we, even if we cut out, I, I want to figure out a way to include Red's sort of sacrificial trip um, all the way to Garden. I, I, I know there's a way to include it. I just don't think we need the seeker necessarily to be a part of it. Yeah, the same plot twist that the speaker did in the book, you'll be able to get in other ways in a movie or a television yeah. show. Like, I, this is like my thing here, and like I, I'm probably in a like small minority on this, but like I kind of feel that the shot of footsteps or shot of a hand or when you're concealing a character's identity intentionally, but still letting us see them, 
it, it seems like it's a very antiquated thing. Like the the fact that um, Zack Snyder decided to like you know the the fight scene with the comedian in the beginning is awesome, but like the fact that they really worked as hard as they did to like not show the face, mm-hmm. I was just like I was like wow. So the whole the twist is basically dependent on whether or not this guy steps into the light. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. So. Um, there's only so much you can and like in Watchmen was like 2009. So I just, I don't, I personally don't think that that is the most effective way to build a twist. And like, that's what they're doing here with the book. And if you would have incorporated this character into the show, I have this feeling that you would be forced into that at least for a while. And then I don't know. The seeker would probably evolve into like um, I I don't know like a private like almost like the the private eye in the last season of Ozark or something where it's this character that's like going around trying to find something and mm. you, have, you end up having this sort of like unnecessary relationship with the seeker because everything that they're doing is just you're going to get to it anyway. So like they're. You, you're taking something and making it and expanding upon it for almost like no reason whatsoever. Like it would be to show off a writer's witty dialogue or something like that would be the only real reason to do it. Right. Exactly. You, we can get to it. You know, like the secret thing works in a book. Like it just, it works in a book. It just, not that it couldn't work in in an adaptation. I just don't think you need it. Um, And I would rather dedicate that sort of time to getting more, like we said, like more um, garden, more agency, or more commandant. Um, like in fact, like I like I sort of pictured commandant and um, and garden taking up time as sort of like the conscience for both of them. Mm-hmm. Like to remind them every episode, like this is what you need to do. This is what's happening. Blah blah blah. Even if it's only like just one quick scene, um, yeah. I'd rather dedicate the time to that than building in a time travel twist. Especially since like I I think. I think visually people like if you know, like you said, like the sort of the shadow in the background, the hand grabbing something, that kind of stuff that it would be, I think it would be much more telegraphed in a TV show or a movie that that's what we're doing. That one of these two is the, is the yeah. seeker. Like, whereas in a book you can just mention it and it sort of sits in the background for you. Right. Like, right. But in a TV show, when you do something that like you show something like that, you are drawing all attention and eyes to it, that this is important pay attention to this. So I think it would kind of ruin that twist a little bit in a TV show. Yeah. And like, you know, the, when I think about it, you're going to be like, there'll be a build to it for so long. Right. I mean, this obviously wouldn't be something that you would address in episode one. So you'd be, you'd be laying a lot of foundation to just have it be the other character. If, I don't know. For some reason in television and in movie, in a, in a movie, it seems like it's an okay twist, but in television, it just, I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like the best twist to have in a television show. You, like, just thinking, sitting here thinking about this right now, what you could do is have, um, you know, like, obviously the Seeker is trying to collect the DNA. Um, or Red is trying to collect the DNA from Blue so that she can, so the poison sort of adapts to her body, blah, 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 whatever. Literally just have her... Like look, examine one of the letters or something that she held on to. Find mm-hmm. a hair in the letter. Eat the hair. It looks fucking weird as shit. Eat the hair. Sneak one of those poison seeds. Eat the seed, and then we then we began the time travel journey back through garden. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. No, I could see that playing out a little bit better. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Um, either way, I think uh, once again, um, Hollywood, get us on the fucking horn 
we got some ideas to spill for you. I think we did, both did a very good job. Yeah, definitely on the, that one. And um, Hollywood, yeah, I'm actually out here now, so I'm closer to you than you think. Sam's <laughs> right there for he's available for some rose hip tea. Get get him on the horn; he'll meet you in person. Oh, you fucking know it, dude. We could have vegan tacos and everything. There you go. There you go. Um, any final thoughts here uh, before we wrap this up? Other than the fact that, um, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, reading this book, and um, it's weird because I. So after we did the first episode, I I didn't open the book again until like within the last like five days or so. Yeah. And I in in this time period is weird. I, I read like a thirty three and a third book, and I read the Joker script and the Lighthouse script. So I've done a pretty decent amount of reading in between these two episodes. And I got to tell you, like when I picked up the book again, like which probably would be Saturday or Sunday um, now, there was. It wasn't like a completely different book, but there was just like all these things, especially in the beginning, that I'm just like, wow, like the recency bias stuff. There's just all these kinds of things that like little stuff that like you miss like the the first time around because you're just like as you progress along with the story, you're more – familiar with what happens Mm. like as you go along and like as i was just like going back through it i was like wow like just there's so much pop culture stuff like so many more visuals so many more like bloody stuff so many more weird twisted kind of cool things and it's almost like the book has a whole new life the the second time around and i'm sure that's very common with a lot of books but with this particular one i felt like diving into certain things and rereading them the second time around a whole new life was shot into the story it it is it's not it's not too unlike watching a movie multiple times that has sort of either intentionally hidden stuff or stuff that is important that's kind of going on in the background like the the second time i watched midsummer um mm-hmm. all of the messaging stuff that was yeah. plainly visible that i mean obviously like Ari Aster was drawing attention to, you just didn't like realize that the right. first bear that they show within the first 10 minutes of the movie is going to be critically important to the ending of the movie. Um, yeah. All the stuff that's written on the walls that like is literally telling the story of what is going to happen to these fucking kids. Like yeah. it's all sitting there for you if you're paying attention. So it, it has that, it definitely had that same kind of feel. I didn't do, I didn't like, I didn't like reread the book. I went through and like, I was looking for, for very particular things. And I just like reread those letters and I was kind of like, oh, right. Oh, there is more here because yeah. like you said, I'm just familiar with it already. I, now I can like see some of the other things that are there too. Yeah. Dude, the Midsummer thing is a great reference because like I, I, I've only seen the movie once and like I somehow stumbled upon a tweet or a meme or something like that. I didn't see the imagery from the movie, but I just saw something that was just like, pay attention to the paintings or something like that. Right. Mm. And like when I, after seeing this, I watched Midsummer like very shortly after seeing this and like, yeah, like those details and stuff like that, it is fucking crystal clear as day that like all the crap on the walls in the background, like everything that you see like takes place. There's all these like visual clues there and stuff. Mm. And I, I think that that shit is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love that kind of, I love that kind of storytelling. The, the, you know, like, I don't, I don't even what you call it. I don't know the hidden storytelling, I guess. I don't know. Whatever obscured storytelling. I mean, it's right there. Obviously the details are very different, but, but like, Hey, by the way, you're all going to be sacrificed. It's right here in our walls. It's what we do to you strangers. Yeah, that's right guys. Don't you like read the walls? Yeah. 
Um, all right, so I don't have anything else other than uh, I think we fucking killed this. Uh, I have a feeling that we should, uh, you know, since this is sort of our, our whole experimental year, I have a feeling that this is one we should keep around, that we should keep yeah. the book club around. Oh, yeah, dude. I think this is a great this is a great little uh, piece of the Occasionalist podcast history right here. For sure. I could definitely see doing something like this again. Absolutely. All right. How about uh, how about you lead us out of here? Yeah, I will. So everybody out there, thank you very much for tuning into Book Club Month on the Occasionalist podcast as we're rounding it out. Adam Chemalewski, Matthew Pagel, we are the Occasionalists and we will see you next time. Thank you.